The History Things Podcast is brought to you by TR Historical, your one-stop shop for all your historical fan gear needs. Visit trhistorical.com and use the promo code HISTORYTHINGS to receive 10% off your next purchase. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the show. Are you ready? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the History Things Podcast. I'm your host, Pat McGuire, and joining me today is my co-host with the most... You love him, you know him, Park Ranger, historian and author. I changed the order that time. Got to keep you on your toes. Here's my main man, Matty B. How you doing, Matt Borders? I'm doing good, buddy. It's always a pleasure to be here. Into episode three of season two. Yes. Has it? Is it me, or is this year both taking an incredibly long time and also moving incredibly quickly? Uh, it's just the incredibly quickly part yeah. for me. It is hauling butt. You can say the A word, Matt. Oh, I know. Just, you know. You can say ass, <laughs> but no, it is. This year is flying by. Uh, you know, we just blinked, and it seems like we just sat down with Kobe Treadway and Jana to talk about the Lincoln assassination. Right. And, you know, we got the better part of ten hours of storytelling out of that subject, and, and I'm sure a lot of you are still listening to that right now. So when you get out of the Lincoln assassination story, we're going to be bringing you this epic quarter three story. Uh, joining us today is one of our very, very good friends. Uh, he's a guy that that Matt and I have known for years through living history. Uh, and other like you know cool historic endeavors and things like that. He's the uh, one of the main rangers. We'll let you. We'll let him explain it himself. At one of the the most, I guess the way I say it is, it's the coolest historical site you've never heard of before. Uh, but joining us today is our very good friend Rob Ambrose uh, from Fort Frederick Historical Site. So how you doing, buddy? Welcome to the show. Hey, Pat. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I know man. this has sort of been a long time coming. We've been talking about this for, <laughs> well, since before the world ended. Yes. Um, and I, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to get out and see human beings. So this is, <laughs> this is, this is a lot Most of fun, definitely. especially some good friends like you guys. How's it been, man? I know that you live out in, in the sticks out there in West Virginia, wild and wonderful. How's it been uh, since, because I saw you once during the initial like lockdown we swapped living history gear and, and did all that but like I haven't seen too much of you man how's it been i have played things pretty close to vest i guess you could say i've stayed stayed pretty low key took the you know the restrictions and all that stuff pretty seriously once Smart. once i realized this one going to last 3 weeks yeah yeah uh, exactly <laughs> you know i remember the first 3 weeks of this at the park we're wiping everything down we're doing all this stuff and you thought it was going to be over in a month and nope. it kept going yep so we've stayed home. We've stayed, you know, doing all the things you're supposed to do for the most part. Did follow some kids around the country doing sports during COVID, which is fun. <laughs> uh, that's an episode in itself. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> sure I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so just been trying to trooper through at, at work. We've been open the whole time. People always ask, is the fort open again? Well, no, the park has been open. Hmm. We've not shut down at all. I mean, our facilities, some of the buildings and stuff have been closed, but we, we've been there. Right. And we've been there to help people and answer questions as much as we could. So, Well, I was, I was wondering about that because the park has been open for 
most of the park service as well. Monocacy is the same story, but the facilities have been limited. And right. still are. Yeah. Right now, the only thing open in our park, there are bathrooms. Well, there you go. This is the second time I've sat in the War Department studios and been the only non-park ranger. It's, <laughs> it's feeling, all right. Feeling very left out right now. You guys have all your cool, sticky park stuff to talk about and yeah, how you operate. We're all living history nerds, though. Yeah, so. well, I'm just going to go over here and cry for a little while. Yeah, no. I mean, it's, that's, <laughs> our, that's our, our connection, man. I, I'll never forget our first, uh, our first event together. Oh, oh tell yeah. me about that one. Tell, yes. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Rob. Tell a story. <laughs> so um, went down to the uh, Port Republic event a number of years ago now. I don't even remember. It was one of those um, sort of campaigner... March events. Was it the Hell March that got super hot? Yeah. yeah. Was in, I was there in blue. It yeah. was it was in <laughs> June and it was over hundred degrees and marching down pavement on Port Republic Road. Yep. Nope. Um and you know, God bless the people who are running it trying to give us lots of breaks, but because they gave us so many breaks, I think it made it worse. Like Oh yeah, people started to get like too like chilled out in between and yep. it just was bad. Um, I fell out on that march. I caught yeah. riding a pickup truck. I'm no dummy. Yep. <laughs> yep. I made it, but it was, uh, yeah, I don't know if it was worth it. And then, of course, we all got to camp, and we're yeah. hanging out. We're all like, we don't want to cook. We don't want to do <laughs> We don't want to do the campaigner thing right now. We're right. just spent. Too hot. Yeah. Well, wait, Matt. Wait till you. This story is. Yeah. So, so uh, let's see. It was Pat and myself. Uh, a couple other couple jabronis. Other guys. Yeah. We'll just say a couple jabronis. Yeah, a couple other guys. And uh, we said, you know, we're going to go. I, I know there's, I know a place nearby that uh, that, that serves food and uh, has uh, air conditioning. So, oh. yeah, we cheated. I'll admit. I, <laughs> I don't care. I, I live in the 21st century. I, I like to play other Dude, times. I like but... to do campaign living history, but I'll tell you what. I got a freaking day job that pays for all of that stuff, and I got to show up and do it. So right. if I'm dead from the weekend, what does that get me? Right. And and as ever since I put on the khaki and green, it's that's been more of my focus. It's like I can... If I'm here till Sunday, and then I got to go back to work on Monday morning, I got to be be functioning. And right. one time I wasn't. Um, after we did the 150th of Manassas, oh yeah, my boss uh-huh. my boss sent me home. Wow, he's like, "You're done. Go home." I'd been at Manassas for almost a week, mm-hmm. like four days or something, yeah. and I could barely stand up. And he's like, "Go home." That so, was a brutal event. So I kind of learned a lesson then to try not to overdo it. <laughs> Plus, I'm not 16 anymore. So I um, overdid it is the and, point and, of the story. And Pat overdid it. So first, let's see. We stopped at a we stopped at a highway robbery uh, lemonade stand on the way to the parking lot. Oh, we did. Yeah, a bunch of uh, like cute little girls had just realized that they're the only thing going on out here except for this reenactment. So they set themselves up between the parking area and the camp, and so all the people that were walking back and forth between were getting hustled out of money for lemonade. Yeah, like, I think it was like a dollar a glass for, like, one wow. of those, those little Dixie cups. Dude, it was like, like two fifty. dollars Okay, was like, it was, whatever it was, it was too much. I was like, why are you making me change? Like, I, you're just as... They made a lot of money. They like, did. Not even going to lie, they probably made a couple hundo. <laughs> Good so for them. So we went and found this Italian restaurant that I knew about, and we had pizza. We oh, met yeah. that guy from... What country was he from? He's Swede. He's Scandinavian. I don't. I'm bad. So he's from one of the Viking countries. <laughs> okay. I'll just say that. And remember, he ordered that pizza with like everything yeah, on it. Like yeah. Like not just. It was like meat lovers and veggies and like Greek and Mexican. It was so. It was weird. There was a lot of spice on it. It was. It would have been a difficult pizza to eat. I mean, he housed it, dude. Yeah, he did. So we ate. You know, we enjoyed the. We joined. Enjoyed the cold beverages. We enjoyed the pizza. Um, that one guy. 
ended up buying our dinner for us that from the Chindo Valley Battlefields or whatever. Oh, you know what? I just realized what you're about to get to, and I think that actually happened before we ate. Actually, I think you're right. I think I, I was think as I was, I was just, telling this story. I think I was just f***ed up from the heat at that point. Yeah. So Pat had Pat had overdone it. Um, <laughs> heat had gotten to him. It got to everybody. And he's right. He's right. I told the story wrong. We were getting out of the car, my minivan. That's right. My minivan. Dude, <laughs> calm down. Save some for the rest of us. So. <laughs> ladies, 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 back off. All right. Rob's married. God. Yeah. Uh, so we get out of the getting out of the minivan, and Pat slides the door open, and then I lose it, dude. <laughs> I lost every last bit of nothing that was already in my belly. Like it was just foul like i i had said when we were getting in the van that like you know how like when you're like heat fried and then the air conditioning feels great but then suddenly makes you nauseous because yep. it's like too much cold so like rob you shacked your, AC, you shacked your system 100 percent. and so the only way to get out of where we were was like all these stupid ass windy country roads so i'm already like oh jesus and then right before we get into the parking lot of this place it's like hey do you want to go over three huge ass speed bumps and Rob drives like me. He's like, uh, screw it. Like, just hits him. And I, I was like, I think I passively said, like, 10 minutes before, like, I'm not feeling that great. And we were all just kind of zoning out because we're all heat zombies. Right. He hits these three things. And I, like, couldn't even tell him that I was about to get sick. And as soon as the door opened, I, like, barely made it out. I, like, around the back of his car, like, trying to hide it from these guys. And poor... Poor random people sitting in the car behind us because they got a front row seat of me just losing it. <laughs> and you got to try to, like, I'm sorry if this is gross for all the listeners, but, like, I hadn't you hadn't eaten. Mm-mm. Like, I'd had, like, four crackers, mm-hmm. like, during the day. And, like, I think I ate an apple that somebody gave me while we were marching and, like, a shit ton of water. Right. And, oh, my God, dude, it was it was so foul. But then I was instantly starving. So I got this massive pepperoni pizza, and I ate, like, almost all of it. Yeah, we so ate way good. too much. But but to, for me, the, the point of the story is, yeah. is for some odd reason, that moment has bonded us together yeah. forever. Uh-huh. <laughs> so anyway, so, so Rob, you are here uh, to talk about a kind of cool, like, um, I guess we're going to do, like, an audio version of a living history program that you put on at your site, which I'll let you uh, tell us about in a minute here. But um, w- this theme of tonight's going to be one fort, three wars. So Rob obviously works at a, at a historical fortification. Where, well, again, we'll let him talk to you about it. But um, we talk about three areas the most because we're, we three have some eras. favorites. What did I say? Areas. Did I say areas? That yeah. also works, doesn't it? <laughs> three eras. But doesn't areas, I mean, I didn't mean to say areas, but doesn't areas also work? I yeah, su- I suppose. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> See, three this is three areas of interest. Do you know what this guy go. did to me? I made Lincoln six foot five, and he was like, "Well, six four. and I was like, "Oh God, <laughs> dick." Gotta be accurate. <laughs> so, so Matt sounds like one of my children. <laughs> I love you, boys. Rob, you are, uh, you are. How do I describe what you do? I always just when I tell people casually, I'm like, "He's like the main guy over at Fort Frederick." So, like, how do we professionally describe what you do at Fort Frederick Historical Site? So officially, park, sorry. officially, my title is park ranger. Um, unofficially, I love that catch-all. Yeah, it's park <laughs> ranger. Unofficially, I would say, oh, I'm trying to think of what the na- oh. Mater D. No, I was trying to think of the uh, <laughs> National Park Service equivalent. Um, chief of Interp? Sort of chief of Interp. Like my 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 boss is really the chief of Interp. 
but I do the day to day. Like I do, I run it hands on. Okay. He's the guy I go to sometimes. Like, hey, can we do this? Like, does this sound good? <laughs> All right. Nice. Um, he's assistant park manager, so you know, yeah. I guess you could say I'm the chief of interp, whatever. Yeah, because they'd be but, like intendants and deputy superintendent or whatever. Right. So, yeah. yeah right. So sounds yeah. like the chief to me. Yeah. yeah. So I, I run the day to day operation of the the interpretive program and set up the pro the, you know any special events and. All that stuff. So yeah, I mean, I, I hate using that word because I know I know that I'm still not quite the top of the pecking order. <laughs> yeah, right. But yeah, for 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 sake of because I I used to say site manager, but in a lot of places site manager means X Y or Z the whole right, place you're running the show. I'd like to say, well, I'm the manager of the historic site. The the but yeah, so chief of interp I guess would be the best best way to describe me. But yes, I am a generalist park ranger. I do operations. I do interpretation. I do. You've got a huge other duties as a side. Yes, I do. <laughs> in 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 what we do in the Maryland Park Service, we do everything but law, uh, full blown law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So I have to enforce the rules, but I don't have. I'm quote unquote a civilian. So when it gets real hairy, you're like, don't make me call the real cops. Exactly. For real. <laughs> exactly. For I will I will dial this quickly. Although I've got most, it on speed dial. Yeah. Although most of the time they don't have a clue. Do right. you think it'd be faster to speed dial 911 than to just dial 911? I feel like you'd actually waste more time being like, shit, what number is that? <laughs> but yeah, so so yeah, so basically interpretate run the run the interpretive program. So that's my that's my that's my main thing. But if you look at my uh uh, job description, it is not. But uh, mm. yeah, it's much. What my, if we dress up what your title is and just start calling you Garrison Commander because you have a fort oh. and there would be a garrison there and you are in charge of it? I, I like that. Um, well, in terms of Fort Frederick, you call me Governor. Okay, Governor. Oh, I am that. The, see, I like you, but that that might I make am your the, head I am get the, a little bit. I am the Governor of the Fort. Oh wow, see, that's that, that's the Commander of the Fort is the Governor. Do you think this room can handle all this ego already? I think he's going to need a wig at the very Damn. least. I, you know, the one that's one thing I don't have. I've, I've I keep wig. contemplating. And getting a wig, and I, I have never done it. Because gotcha. um, if you do it, you'll love it, and you'll also be embarrassed to show everybody because you won't shave your mustache. No, I will. The mustache <laughs> is coming off next week because uh, I'm going into the fort doing interpretation, and uh, we are we are officially maskless outdoors. So okay. I will I will shave the mustache, and it will be gone until the end of the year, well, or end of the you summer. Got a anyway, proud cookie duster man. That's fantastic. I, I do. I, I would do. call that something else, but I uh, also yeah. love it. But thank you, thank this you. This is a rated. Family-rated show. No, we I, won't talk about. It. Yeah, we won't get into that. But uh, I'm doing a Caleb Brewster impression at your fort this year, right? I get to show you, up with my big beard, and I'm a whaler. You do. You do look like Caleb Brewster from yeah. from Turn. Very not much, a real so. person. Do you have a, a whale of a tail? I do. Two? I might once caught a fish this big. <laughs> also, today before I came, I was watching the show New Amsterdam. Have you ever seen that? No. It's a medical drama. Okay. And if you wore uh, cardigan sweaters and a tie. You could be this guy on there. His character's name Ziggy From. He's the psychologist, and he reminds me of you a little bit. He's like, he's like the. I know you say you're a nerd, but he's the nerdy you. 
Oh wow, there's another. Well, because there is, because Matt's nerdier than I am, so there's other levels. Not quite of a bit, but but he is. He he's he's kind of built like you, and oh. he might be a little taller. Can you just call me fat. No, you son of a. No, I brought. I like to say you're broad shouldered. I was just kidding. He is Damn. that. Yeah, no, I mean, I am. Yeah, but but yeah. So me. so if you ever look it up, you'll probably say I'm completely nuts. But today I saw that I was like, he kind of reminds me of Pat. Yeah, now I need to go get some sweaters and all that. <laughs> it's because I'm very analytical. Obviously, I'm very psychological. Said no one ever. Also. Um, so, all right. So Fort Frederick, it, I obviously never heard of it until I met you. And I was obviously like an idiot. Like I live in Frederick, where in Frederick is it? And Frederick, Maryland, that is. And, uh, not in Frederick, Maryland. So first let's start with where it is. And then let's just, let's start with the roots of how the Ford even comes into existence. So where is it? Like if you are, and a mo- why yeah. is it? <laughs> if you are, so let's, yeah, let's answer that a couple ways. So let's start with, if you are a modern day tourist and you want to go visit this site, where do you find it? All right. Fort Frederick state park is located in big pool, Maryland. We are about 20 miles west of Hagerstown. And, mm. and, and the park is literally a mile off interstate 70, uh, exit 12. If you're looking for it. Uh, Indian Springs, right? Uh, Indian Springs Big Pool Exit, that's right, Exit 12. And uh, so, yeah, so we are not in Frederick, and we are easy easy to find, but it's amazing how many people have either never heard of it or think it's ridiculously far away. And it's like, no, it's not really that far away. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, so that's where we're located today, Big Pool, Maryland. You want the roots of Fort... Like, Fre- when was it built, and why was it built? Yeah, so Fort Frederick uh, was built in 1756, uh, built by the Colony of Maryland. Um, go into the why it's unique a little bit. Uh, Fort Frederick is still around because it was built of stone, and it's one of its unique features. It's the only stone fort built by a British colony during the French and Indian War era. And as far as I know, and you know, maybe one of your listeners can correct me because we've never been able to figure out otherwise, the only stone fort built actually by the British, period, colonist or, or royal funds in North America at the time. Really? Hmm. Yes. So and it's a big fort. And and some people might say throughout like Ticonderoga, originally built by the French. Right, right. Fort Clarion, I, same thing. Right. French. I yeah. knew I knew Ticonderoga. Um, I didn't know that. But uh, you know, that was my you know, my because uh, I always think about it in the Rev War, you right. know, being a British fort. But yes, yeah, so as far as we can come up with, the only fully stone fortification built by the British by a British colony for sure, and by the British government period. In North America in the 1750s. That's a cool, like, claim. That's a great That's fact, a, yeah. Yeah, I've known you for years. You just dropped that nugget on me right now? <laughs> I've been saving for a rainy day. Dude, this is a hell of a rainy day. Thanks for bringing it. Yeah, so that's that's one of the reasons we exist, because the fort has been there. The walls have literally been standing for 260-plus years. I'm trying to think, where are we at now? 265-ish? We're historians, everyone. We're not mathematicians. Yes, exactly. Give us a break. Um, with, you know, losing a year, basically I've lost track of my math. So sure. yeah, if you've got the math skills or a calculator. <laughs> 265 years ago. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, man. Nice. I've been, you can tell you've been there, been there a while because I, I figured that out without doing the math. <laughs> so, so that's what's <laughs> unique. That is, our, that is our artifact, is literally the fort wall itself. Uh, why was Fort Frederick built? I won't go into the in the beginning, but long story short, there is a war that starts in North America between the French and the English because the French are in Canada and in Louisiana. 
the English are along the East Coast in colonies. The French want to connect their colonies in the Louisiana Territory with New France or Canada today. And the important point of that is the forks of the Ohio River at what's now Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the Ohio, the Allegheny, and Monongahela all come together. Well, the Monongahela and the Allegheny merge and make the Ohio River. So that's... So they're going north-south, and the English colonists are trying to head west. I mean, you think about it, even in the 1750s, you have some pretty big cities. New York, Boston, Charleston. Uh, theoretically, Annapolis is, is a pretty big place. Uh, Williamsburg, Virginia is more like a college town uh, because it's only busy <laughs> when it's capital time, you know, right. when the capital's in session or, and William and Mary is in session. Uh, but there's some pretty big, big cities, and most of the people are crammed up against the coast. And we keep getting more and more English settlers, and they want to go west. They want more land. Right. So they're going west, and the French are going north-south, and it's kind of like coming to an intersection with no stop sign. And two cars show up at the same time. Hmm. You're going to crash. And that's literally what happens in 1753, 1754, and 1755. In 53, Virginia sends George Washington to tell the French to get the heck out of um, the Ohio Territory, the Ohio country, which is now western PA, West Virginia, um, and even some in Ohio, Illinois hmm. area. He tells them to get out. They politely say, thanks, but no, no thanks, we're not leaving. Um not long after that, the Virginians try to build a fort at the Forks of the Ohio River um, called Fort Prince George. They have it almost completed. They're putting the doors on the fort, and the French show up. There's like 30 Virginians and like 300 Frenchmen show up. <laughs> Needless to say, the Virginians go back to Williamsburg. Nobody expects the French Inquisition. So after that happens... That joke doesn't work. <laughs> after that happens, um, in uh, the spring of 1754... George Washington is sent with a group of Virginians, again, to try to take the Forks of the Ohio. And he's also, what a lot of people don't realize, he's not, it's not just Virginians. There's actually royal troops under a Captain McKay. They are um, uh, independent companies there, but these are royal troops that are with them too. So this makes an interesting situation. But Washington goes out and he's going to go um, and find the French and he's going to remove them from the Forks. Uh, in the meantime... He gets engaged in a little battle at a place called today Jamonville Glen. Mm -hmm. Nasty is, little fight. He is led there by his uh, Indian ally by the name of the Half King. And um, it ends up basically, I don't know who fires the first shot, but it basically becomes a massacre, an ambush. The Virginians basically kill the majority of the Frenchmen that are there. One escapes, they take some prisoners. But the big thing that happens is that the half king comes up to uh, Lieutenant Jamonville or Jamonville, English pronunciation, French pronunciation, yes. whichever, uh, and basically raises up his hatchet and looks at him and says, "You are not yet dead, my white father," and plunges his hatchet into the guy's skull. Wow! This is a very political move on his part. He is literally telling the French, "You were still alive," but he then kills him. You are now dead. Do you, I am now with the English. We aren't with you anymore. Washington goes back to what's known as the Great Meadow. He builds a fort of necessity, a little right. wooden stockade fort in the middle of this field, as he calls it, a charming field for an encounter. Needless to say, the French come after him. 
Uh, duh. Hmm. Uh, I believe it's July 3rd, 1754. Big, long battle takes place. It's pouring down rain. The, the, unfortunately, the French won't come out and fight a European battle like Washington wants. They step sort of in the little low hills around him, and they're just shooting down the English like dogs, left, right, and center. So finally, uh, the French send him terms for surrender. Washington's uh, translator is a Dutchman by the name of Von Braun. I don't know if he's related to Werner. I was Brown literally going to ask know. you. I don't know that. <laughs> I'm, I should look that up just because that's a curiosity question. Uh, Von Braun isn't a very good French reader or speaker. So they've got this rain-soaked, water-soaked document that's splattered. And somehow they miss a very important line that says basically that Washington was l'assassin of Lieutenant Jumonville. I don't speak French. But I know what the word assassin means. I right. know what lay means. <laughs> so together we are confirming it means the assassin. The assassin, yes, correct. <laughs> God, historical investigation just took place live on the History Things podcast. You are all welcome. So Washington surrenders, doesn't know what he signed. The French published this. And, you know, imagine the headline on the news the next day. Virginian, Virginia militia colonel admits he murdered French officer. It's sacre bleu. Sacre bleu. Did right. he really just straight? He's like, I did it. He didn't realize. He didn't realize he, was, he did it. Yeah. He's 22. Also, yeah. he's probably going through a little shock after watching what just happened and being in a battle, having all these casualties. That escalated quickly. Yeah, yeah. And I also like to remind people: most people, what were you doing when you were 22? Were you leading an army, <laughs> even a, even a small one? Uh, yeah. So he's he's got a lot of room for growing up. So the French courts capitalize on this, and that really starts the French and Indian War in North America. I mean, this war will become truly the First World War, and it starts here. There's been other wars that have happened between the French and the English that have spilled over into our continent, but this one starts here. This will then lead into the Seven Years' War right. that's the global conflict that touches every continent um, on the planet. So, Arguably the first... First World War. Yes, arguably the first First World War. Uh, not to be confused with the redo. Yeah, no. In I mean, I just, because we talk about this another time in history, because the Crimea is often called World War Zero. Right. But, right. I, but I mean, like, so what is this, World War Negative One? Well, and I'm sure you could look at some of the other yeah, other, other conflicts, even in the 18th century, that, you know, there's fighting on several different continents. Sure. But this one, I mean, literally there's fighting in, in India, and there's fighting in the Caribbean. And, and they're all interconnected. In, yeah. It's not, I'm not just meaning this happenstance fighting. Like, this is interconnected right. conflict. Right. So. so then in 1755, sorry, I said this isn't going to take long, but it's, it's, there's a lot to pack, unpack. Unpack it. Um, Show me your luggage. The, no, don't, don't. The British send no. a new commander to North America named Edward Braddock. Mm-hmm. And Edward Braddock has two understrength regiments of British regulars, and they team up with the Virginians, um, as well as a company of Marylanders, some North Carolinians. There's a, kind of a, a ragtag, motley force of troops. But it's a 2,000... Roughly 2,000-man army. It's a sizable force. It's the largest army ever seen in North America at that time. It's the largest force in North America at that time. He's got cannons, lots of cannons, lots of artillery, and he decides that he is going to build a road. Basically, he's going to march roughly from, from Winchester, Virginia, 
to what's now Pittsburgh. He's going to cut a road from Cumberland, Maryland. So there's a fort there, Fort Mount Pleasant, which becomes Fort Cumberland. Hold on, we got to stop for a second because there are people in the county that I grew up in that are having a stroke that you said he starts that whole story from Winchester because there is a huge marker in downtown Bethesda, Maryland, where he, when he first gets to the colony, he's got an encampment in Bethesda, Maryland. And when he sets out for Winchester, it's from there. Sorry, Sorry. county. Got to shout out the county I grew up in. We have a historical (laughs) marker for this. All right. That was a rabbit hole I wasn't going to go down, but okay, let's go there. Do it. (laughs) So so I didn't really know about the Bethesda one. I will admit that. But he he actually shows up in Alexandria, Virginia, and he does sort of move around a little bit. He has a meeting in... doesn't he come up through here? He's he got does. a marker yep. like on 40. Well, and that's another thing. There, there. At one point, there are two columns, one that oh. goes through Maryland and one that goes through Virginia, and they all meet at Winchester. Hmm. So if you're in Frederick County, Maryland, and you cross, you go down Braddock Road, yep. you go over Braddock Mountain, all of that is connected to that, uh, to that campaign. That is actually Braddock's guys. Uh, Colonel Dunbar, as the other part of his troops, are in Virginia, but they all basically merge together at Winchester, and from Winchester go to Cumberland. And then from Cumberland's where the real campaign begins, because they have to start building the road from there. But yes, in Alexandria, there's anywhere you go in the DMV area. If Braddock was there, if it says If it says Braddock Road, Braddock whatever, it's General Edward Braddock. Braddock (laughs) Street in Winchester. Did Braddock come with the column into Maryland? Because I seen that sign on on Braddock Heights seems to sort of imply that he's with this column. Yes, yes, I'm. I did misspeak. 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 He he is in the Maryland on the Maryland side. Another problem that people don't realize is they think that he went straight through Maryland. No, right. he goes basically over South Mountain. Down through more or less what's Hagerstown, mm-hmm. which really didn't exist then. Well, he a goes, chunk of it slips right over the northern edge of what becomes Antietam National Battlefield. Correct. Yep. And then he crosses his troops at what's now Williamsport. Right. It mm. was known as Conica Jig back then. And actually in Williamsport, he meets with several governors and Benjamin Franklin hmm. on, on the march. Hey, hey, Matt, this is the guy that taught me how to say that correctly. Conica Ah, Jig. there you go. Remember, it was like in our <laughs> first season. I, I thought about that as I drove over the big Conica Jig Bridge, uh, Creek Bridge today. I thought about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I can say that word. You're the man, Rob. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you very much, because I pull that out literally never, but I got to once. I impressed you Matt. Did, you did, and I was shocked. I'm listening to your podcast. I was out walking, and all of a sudden, I was like, shout out. I was like, Whoa, whoa, where'd that come from? Because you taught me how to say Kanaka Jig. Because everybody says Kanaka Jig? No, it's Kanaka Jig. Yeah. Get it right. So, yeah, so basically he does. He comes through Maryland. Some of the forces come through Virginia. They land at Alexandria, go west. So they leave from Winchester, go to Cumberland. They're Cumberland for a while, and then they literally start cutting a road, which is roughly Route 40 today from Cumberland, Maryland, west. It takes a while, especially the first, like, 10 miles of the road. It's ridiculous how long it takes him. So, but he makes his march, and he's, he's moving along, and finally, a young guy by the name of George Washington, there he is again. Yeah, we've dropped this name. He's familiar to me for some reason. Yeah. Keeps he, coming up. He becomes yeah. his aide, uh, Braddock's aide-de-camp, and he comes up, supposedly, it's him that comes up with the suggestion that you got this 2,000-man army, and it's really slow. you got wagons and stuff. Why don't you split your forces and take a lightning column or a strike force, whatever you want to call it, with a few cannon and your best troops and hit the road hard and let the guys with the with the heavy artillery and the wagons and the women and all that stuff. To, and the, the women. 
the laundresses and the laundresses <laughs> and nurses. I just, I just being an idiot. As most people are when we say women in this 18th century, it, that, it's a, it's, yeah, it's no, a, it's a huge misconception. It's a good clarification to make for sure. Huge, huge, huge misconception. They are women of the army, followers of the army. They are part of the force. They are subject to discipline. Yeah, they do work for the army. They have like, to be virtuous. That's, right, right, Matt said, like, they're the laundresses. They do things. Yeah, yeah. So so they split their force not far from the Great Meadow, where Fort Necessity is. And Braddock goes on with this column, and they get within a few miles of, of Fort Duquesne. They're, they're making it. They cross the Monongahela twice, and not long after the second crossing, the two forces, the French, you now know they're there, and the English basically collide into each other it's not an ambush. It's literally like you're looking at your phone and somebody else is looking at their phone and you bump into each other. And then all hell breaks loose. And this is the first battle of the wilderness this is as the opposed f- to 1864. Yes, the first battle of the wilderness, the battle of Monongahela or Braddock's defeat takes place. It's a three-hour battle. Um, it takes place same day as Monocacy. It's July 9th. Oh, there you go. Yes, it's yes. It's July 9th, 1755. Correct. <laughs> July 9th, 1864. Slight, slight difference. This battle is also similar to how Gettysburg sort of flares up, right? Like, everybody kind of knows they're in the area, but like then they kind of bump into each other and engage, and it's all of a sudden like, they're bringing up all the columns. There's seven columns of federal infantry, and dur, 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 and Heath's all pissed, and shit <laughs> happens, it's and it's Martin like said, Sheen is there. You think they said dur, dur, dur. Yeah, that's exactly I, how they were like, we need to speed up time, so dur, dur, dur. Yeah, no, I don't, it was, I mean, yeah, similar. Definitely the initial contact, because the, the French almost lost the battle initially. Don't you remember Martin Sheen said, there is no time, dur, dur, dur. <laughs> God. The so, French lost the battle. No. No, I know they're doing No, they, the French don't lose the battle they at all. They, they end up basically um, hitting the English in, in, in you know, kind of a, in a frontal attack and then coming up around the hills on the sides, uh, the kind of the horns of the bull um, formation that people talk about sometimes, like with the, the, the Zulu Wars kind of thing. And double the, envelopment. Double, that's double, what I was yes, thinking. Thank you, double envelopment. I was that thinking would be Hugh Mercer. I was like, why, why? So that's what they do, um, and roughly 900 of the 1,000 men become casualties, wounded, killed, missing. George among them? Um, God, his name's familiar. What is it? If I had like a buck every time he sounded familiar to me. Uh, you know? uh, <laughs> uh, no. So Washington... There's my first groan. <laughs> Washington, I think, has a horse or two shot out from under him. He has, I think, at least seven bullet holes in his clothing, but he's never touched. And there's even an Indian account... Um, uh, he says, we shot at him. We literally aimed at this guy, and our bullets just missed. Was he the original Benjamin Martin? <laughs> God. Oh, dude, it's on tonight. Just get ready. Pull up. Get take your t- Put on your comfy slippers, Matt. This one's going to be a, a ride. So, so, the, so, yeah, they lose. Big time. Uh, the <laughs> they English, don't hit George Washington. They, do not, hit, they do not hit George Washington. The English lose the battle. They retreat. Edward Braddock is, is severely wounded, mortally. He ends up dying on the retreat. They end up burying him in the middle of the road. I was going to ask you to confirm or deny that story. That is true. <laughs> okay. Um, so they bury him in the middle of the road so that the, the American Indian warriors can't desecrate his body. Right. So they bury him in the road, and people are like, what? Why? So they bury him in the road, and then the army literally marches so now the 1,000 men plus wounded that are, that are left march over his body to obliterate any trace 
that he was buried there. So we, to this day, don't know where his body is? They found his body when they were building the National Road in the 1830s, 1840s, and then they moved the remains underneath there's a monument to him. There's a big monument yeah. to him. But yeah. he's still buried here, like he in is the still, States. Yes, he is buried under his monument right up the road from Fort Necessity National Battlefield. It is part of the Fort Necessity um, Battlefield Park. There is a section of the original National Road and the spot where they found him. It's all marked out. It's it's an it's an eerie and kind of cool little little place to go. That's cool. If you're ever out in uh, the Uniontown, Pennsylvania area to see Fort Necessity, Jamonville Glen, and and Braddock's grave. And I got to admit, in terms of of battlefields, I've been to and gives me the the willies. The, the willies, I guess. Jamonville Glen to me looks like at least the way I imagine it looked the day it happened. That's awesome. The engagement there, like there, you can still feel it, it which is which is which is cool. Because Champion Hill at Vicksburg did that for me. When you get there, and you can still see the understandable al- like the alienness of the ground, and like mm-hmm. you could see the the trenches, the craters. Just I stood there and I was like, I have never. That's why the I, that's why we talk about going to the Western Front all the time. Like I want to see Verdun just because. Like, that's a place where you could look at it and still see it. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. So that's, uh, what is this the Fort Necessity site you're talking about? Yeah, Fort about? Necessity, yeah. Jamonville Glen. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a hike even from, from the actual Fort Necessity site, but it's, it's worth the little hike if you yeah. can in your car because you got to drive there. You can't really literally right. hike Don't to literally it. Don't literally hike. You, once you get there, you have to hike to the, to the site. The parking area is, is it, so you get away from everything when you oh, get there, awesome. which is cool. So Braddock's defeat happens. It's bad. I mean, real bad. Um, Colonel Dunbar, who was a second in command, holds a council of war at Cumberland and decides that um, August is a good time to go to Philadelphia and set up winter quarters. Yeah, totally. Super cold soon in like, you know, three, four months. But he's still got to get there. You know, you're no, I get that, but that's a lot of that's a lot of summer ahead of you still in yeah. August. <laughs> it probably this is the mid Atlantic guys. It's probably sixty degrees in Thanksgiving time. Right. So so he retreats and goes to set up winter quarters in, in Philadelphia, and that leaves the frontiers of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia undefended. There's nobody except for there's one company of about fifty Marylanders. Pennsylvania has these loose associations of militia. But they don't have, because it's a Quaker colony, they don't have an official militia or provincial force. And Virginia has um, their companies, but it's, you know, I'm trying to think it might be five companies at that point. But they've got to defend, in their minds anyways, from Cumberland, Maryland, to at least... Northern North Carolina, like like the wow. Carolina border with, with with Southern Virginia. So just like a small, like a, if you were a cop, this is a small beat, is what you're describing, right? Like just just a small, like a block or two. I mean, we're talking several hundreds of miles here, guys. Yeah. So like, how many how many guys are we talking to run this show? He has probably there's probably five hundred to a thousand men. Strung out over the... Co- over, what are we going to say, like 400? Probably 400, 450 miles, yeah. 500 miles? Yeah. Holy moly. Good luck. Um, Maryland, not so bad. Right. Are, are their borders a little uh, a little more narrow and, <laughs> and confined yeah. because of those other big colonies that have compressed it? Hey, listen, we, we're not... Listen, we're a Maryland-based show here, so if you're you know in the bordering commonwealths, just know that you're second. We're first, okay? Get out of here, <laughs> jerks. 
Yeah, when I tell the French New War story, I have mixed emotions as a as a <laughs> as a as someone born in Virginia and a a you know native West Virginian, part of the Commonwealth originally. Uh, yeah, I always struggle sometimes that I have to say things bluntly about Virginia. You also act like a Marylander. You're like a hybrid of all the places you exist. I, I am. You sound like a Marylander. <laughs> I, I do. You've said oh a few times on this show. <laughs> the Yankee fan of me is dying. Well, my mom was born and raised in uh, in suburban Mar- suburban DC in Maryland. Right. So, so I do have some some Maryland ties. Yeah, you got them. Um, so they've got to figure out how to defend this this frontier, and and we'll now narrow back into Maryland. Um, governor Horatio Sharp, who was the governor, colonial governor of Maryland at the time, is a former. I don't know if you can say former, a retired maybe British military officer. Hmm. And has seen some service, and he gets it. Like, he gets defense. He gets what needs to be done. The problem is, is that he has to deal with the Maryland State House. <laughs> Politics. It's, it's not a dictatorship. It's, it's a landed gentry democracy. That's what we'll call it. Um, that was very diplomatic, by the way. <laughs> uh, it, it is. And I will tell you, reading these these arguments and debates and political stuff from the 1750s, which you can find all online from the Maryland archives, you change, for the most part, the names and the dates, and the arguments haven't changed. Oh, sure. The debates and politics have not changed. Conservatives versus liberals, and I wouldn't even call them liberals back then, but kind of that debate, you know, the... The guys are like, yeah, we should spend the money. And the guys are like, no, we no, shouldn't, we shouldn't spend, spend the money. The money. Right. Um, and, and when it comes to defense, you know, the people who are, say, Baltimore West are a little more into the idea of, oh, they could, the French and the Indians could attack us. Well, yeah, because it's more relevant to them. You're in the danger zone. Cue the Kenny Loggins. Highway. <laughs> but the, uh, but the, the, the elites in Southern Maryland along the Chesapeake Bay, particularly the eastern shore, they're, they're, not, they're not invested. Right, they're holding it down out there. They have no real danger. The English aren't coming for them. They are the English. Yeah, I mean, like, if somebody said we should put, that happens later. Should put cannons on the coast, they'd have probably been, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Because it would be their area. But, but because it's out west, they don't care. Yeah. So the governor knows he needs to do something. So he keeps putting, he actually puts some money forward from, from, a lottery or subscriptions or, or sort of like a bond issue today kind of situation where you get money from people to, to, to fund some defense. So Maryland, like I said, has raised one company under John Dagworthy already. He gets another group of men, 20 men under Thomas Stoddart, uh, and gets money for them to go out to what's today Hancock, Maryland, mm-hmm. and build a small stockade fort in, in August, July and August of 1755 after Braddock's defeat. And they build a small stockade fort known today either as Stoddart's Fort or Fort Tonalaway because it was on the Tonalaway Creek. And um, so their job, him and his 20 guys, are to defend the frontier too. So you've got him there. Dagworthy's usually at Cumberland trying to hold things down there because there's a pretty big fort and, and uh, supply base there along with work with Virginia uh, somewhat successfully, somewhat not. Um, Virginia and Maryland have a very interesting relationship in the 1750s. They can work together for a minute, and then they can't. So so just like right now, to further prove your point, because that's exactly how Maryland acts with Virginia now. Sometimes we're BFF, sometimes we're like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah, exactly. There, there are moments that they, that they can work together. Hey, we need this. 
one colony gives something to the other. And then other times, it's like, you know, each man for himself. Hmm. Yeah. So there's no unified, you know, system in, in the colonies. So he starts, he has this small fort. Things are not good. There, there are tons of attacks in the frontier areas along the border of Pennsylvania and Maryland and Virginia. Uh, raids are happening. So he knows he needs a bigger fort. And he wants to build a fort literally between Fort Cumberland and Fort Tenalaway. He wants to build a really big fort. And he actually even thinks about getting Virginia involved with it. A regional approach. Well, needless to say, the, the Maryland Assembly is not going to work with Virginia. Mm. And there was another problem was they didn't want to fund a fort. Maryland didn't want to fund a fort that might not end up in their colony when the borders are finally settled because the borders aren't settled. Mason and Dixon haven't come along yet and made the lines. So they really are shooting that down, and there's a lot of back and forth. The upper house, the assembly, doesn't want to spend the money. The lower house does. The lower house is popularly elected. The upper house is sort of the... House of Lords? Yeah, of the House of Lords kind of situation. And they just do not want to want to do this. Finally... A year, almost a year later from Braddock's defeat, by May of 1756, after much fighting and arguing, and it's a whole long convoluted story, he gets 11,000 pounds for defense. The one big caveat is, is he is not going to get to put his fort where he wanted to put it. Hmm. He wants to put it near present-day Old Town, Maryland, at the confluence of the south branch of the Potomac and the Potomac River. So we'd have Cumberland, then he would have his new fort, then he'd have Tenalaway, and then he wanted to build some more smaller forts going back east. And forts needed to be 12 to 20 miles apart because you need to be able to communicate, right. as they called them in the communication, right. be able to move from one to the other within a day. Right. So he wanted to build these forts, it, it, and it didn't happen. So finally, and, and there's... Basically, the argument that they gave was even Fort Tenalaway, Stoddard's Fort, they said the Maryland Assembly literally says it's five miles beyond our inhabitations. So they're like, no, we're not going to let you build anything west of that. And they find this property at, at North Mountain, off of North Mountain, Fairview Mountain today. Um, and they purchase the land and they build this fort and they start construction and uh, June of 1756. And another one of the trade-offs is, is that he had to abandon Fort Tenalaway as well because they weren't going to fund two forts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they don't also want to send troops to Cumberland either. They're like, no, no, no. We're not paying for troops to go to Cumberland. And that's a whole nother long, long, interesting... Um, They're going to give him one big fort. One big fort. And that's it. And he is going to build it of stone. Maryland Assembly is not happy about that. More expensive. Exactly. And... After right after he gets the money, a fort in Pennsylvania named Granville is burned to the ground, stockade fort. And he says, see, guys, this is why we're going to build mine a stone. You can huff and puff, but you won't blow my house down. Solid. <laughs> Three Little Pigs reference. I love it. So so that he, and, and this is the other thing that I think is really cool about Governor Sharp. Not only is he a military man, and because he's a military man, he literally, this is the governor of the colony. Imagine Governor Hogan doing this. We're going to, we're going to do a public works project. And I'm going to actually oversee it. So Governor, Governor Sharp leaves Annapolis and goes out to the fort at North Mountain, is what he calls it initially, and is there for like three or four weeks overseeing construction of this fort. Wow. He says that, that basically there's no one in the colony who knows how to build a fort but me. 
I mean, that's loosely bold. translated, that's what he says. He says some the men and officers are all raw and ignorant of anything military or military construction or something along those lines. And it's been translated over the years kind of incorrectly. People have said, oh, no, he means they're stupid people. It's like, no, he means that they don't know how to build a European fort. In America. In America. <laughs> America. No, I, uh, I was thinking that as you said that because I, I'm a big believer. If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And there's probably some of that involved here. He's like, look, sure. you guys aren't getting it. I'm not, not being critical of you, but this has got to get done, and I know how to do it. So I'm going to do it because obviously he's from Texas. That's why he talks like that. Texas, England, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, you know, yeehaw, it's, mate. It's, it's way, <laughs> it's no, one of those lesser no, known It's way, way, way southern England. Uh oh, it's way southern England. Yeah. Um, so he goes out to oversee <laughs> this, and he is a man of action. He goes out to the frontiers many times. He goes out earlier in, in 1754. He's going to go out and see that construction, and he's going to go out to the frontiers a couple more times later because there's several times is it kind of like, so we have a disaster. Let's say there's a, a tornado goes through some part of the state and the governor shows up, right, to, to make people feel good. Sure, and he does yeah. this on a couple occasions, but he doesn't just go out and make them feel good. He literally takes command of the militia. Like, he'll go out and he'll, he'll go out with the county militia. He's like, I'm in charge. It's his and, prerogative. And it's his prerogative. And, and if you ever see the portrait of the man, he is in military uniform. He's, he's a military man. Mm-hmm. He even tries at one point, he gets so frustrated in Maryland Assembly, he writes his brother and says, I want to go back in the military. Can you get me a new commission? Wow. But I won't accept anything less than full colonel. By the way, <laughs> I don't just want to go back into the military. I want some sick-ass rank and some power. And, and so we With know, something with teeth. Yeah, we think he was a, a, a captain or a lieutenant colonel, although I have seen a reference somewhere that re- said something about him being a general previously. But his records are very sketchy. Mm. Um, he may have served in two different units, a Marine unit and an Army unit. He may have served in India. So he was... Possibly well-traveled. Was he Jason Bourne? <laughs> he may have done all these things, but I can't confirm it because he'll kill you. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard. So he gets them to come out. He builds this fort. He's got 11,000 pounds for defense. 6,000 of it is literally to build the fort and uh, everything that goes along with that. So Fort Frederick has got about an 18-foot tall stone wall. It's about three feet thick. There's an acre and a half of land inside of the fort. Um, for any French and Indian War people out there, Fort Frederick is big enough that most French and Indian War forts would fit inside its parade field. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's George, a great description. George Washington's Fort Necessity, you could put nine of them between our barracks. Wait, what? Nine, yeah. Nine, God, I nine knew it was small, but geez. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Our barracks are 120 feet long. Fort Cumberland was 120 feet long. Hmm. So, again, that gives you, and, and there's a relatively big fort um so yeah we're it's 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 a huge undertaking and if if it was completed correctly not only is it three foot thick walls it's got a about 16 feet of dirt behind the stone wall and then a log wall behind that so now you're talking a 20 foot thick wall yeah you're not breaching that going through it right you better have some grappling hooks you're going over the top you're gonna have to go over the top and you're gonna have to face Hopefully, if it's fully garrisoned, uh, 200, roughly 200 muskets and four cannon. That's hmm. right. Uh, one cannon, six-pound cannon in each bastion, meaning it fires a six-pound iron um, iron ball that has a range of a half a mile. So You're going to look like Carrie Ells in glory when you get to the top of that parapet. You are, good, you are dead. Good reference. Good reference, yes. Yeah. Very good. You're dead. Like, oh, the, 
Best part of that is the music. They're swelling. They're taking the fort, and then boom, canister, yeah, fire. Yeah, and there's only one entrance into the fort. Most forts of that era have two entrances, so you really have to breach one. Is there no sally port on there's Fort no Frederick? There's no sally port on huh. Fort Frederick. Really? Yes, no sally Just port. Just the main gate. Just the main gate, which had a wicket, the smaller door for allowing individuals in. That also works against the defenders, though, because it, if they do get truly sieged, like they're, there's one way in, one way out. It does, and unfortunately, we don't know why. Like, there's no reference to anything saying why there's not a, a sally gate. Also, though, the sally gate theoretically would be on the land side of the fort, the way the fort's set up, and the land side is where you expect your attack to come from, so you don't want a weak point. No, right, right, That right. sounds and, reasonable. And the, the, <laughs> the southern exposure of the fort where the gate is is towards the river, which, again, in theory, you wouldn't have an attacking force coming from. I mean, you could, but you'd have a bunch of guys in canoes or something. It'd be pretty easy Exposed. to see. Also, without going down the rabbit hole, that also makes me think that Helm's Deep is a dumbass build because everything is channeled into one direction, and, of course, you have that stupid little drain they breach and blow up. So, like, just Talk just to Avery about bad about fortification about building. Jesus. I mean, everybody's got an Achilles heel, you know. There's, I'm sure there was something. Especially Achilles. God. Yeah, yeah. God. Literally. The, the one thing that Fort Frederick has going for it, even if, because there's some great debate over how much of the interior defenses were finished. And part of that will lead, uh, part of that becomes part of the next, we'll want to talk about a little more in the next part of the story. Sure. But, but it, if the walls weren't done in typical... Vauban style, which means it's a star fort, and Fort Frederick is one of the simplest versions. It's only got four points. It's not a five point. It doesn't have some of the horn works and outer works of places like Fort McHenry or something, if right. you've seen an aerial of that. My, it's the same. my fort nerd is going off right now. I'm, I'm loving this. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't have, have a lot of that stuff, at least as far as we know. So, But even if the wall's only three feet thick, Fort Frederick is about 40 miles west of Frederick, Maryland. And we are, what, 120 miles, modern highway miles from Pittsburgh, from, yeah. from Fort Duquesne? Yep. That's a long way to go. And the French never had the numbers of troops that the English had. So imagine the French trying to bring a siege army over right. to get Fort Frederick. First, they'd have to go through several probably other forts like Cumberland or whatever other Cumberland would have fallen pretty quickly. If anybody loves Fort Cumberland, I'm sorry. Um, it don't, just don't apologize. Facts are facts. If you're Governor Sharp says it, it wasn't. He said it wasn't worth the name Fort. Wow. Um, basically, because it's commanded by hills around it. Tell um, us how you really feel, Governor yeah. Sharp. He was. <laughs> Jeez. He, he's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. He really is. I, I. I wish somebody in the modern era of history would write about him. Um, oh, actually, I just now I say that. Shout out to my friend Tim Ware. He's going to be working on a book about him. So. Is he? Oh, so, I, I was hoping you were going to say, oh, maybe I am. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I just sort of had that brain moment. He's he's researching and, and, and got a deal to do a book. Awesome. So, Congratulations cool. to him. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's cool. So there might be, might have a good, uh, no, I shouldn't say might be. We will have a good book on Governor Sharp since Lady Edgar. That's Sweet. the last lady person that wrote about him in like the early 20th century. Wow. Thanks, Lady Edgar. Yeah. And we get some good stuff from him, from her, but you know it's not cited or anything. That's of course you know you wonder sometimes. <sighs> so, so Fort Duquesne being 120 miles away, 
when the French and their Indian allies would go out on raiding parties, they might start out as a group of, say, 100 guys. And I'm just using that number, but picture that as a big, think of that as a big number, 100 guys. But they would go so far out, and then they would split into a group of 50. And then a little further east, they split to 25. Because the further east they go, the closer they get to settlements, the bigger the group, the easier they are to spot, the easier they are to find. So the smaller the groups, because what do we... What do we think of when we think of the French and Indian War, like when it comes to what the French and the Indians are doing? Like, where are they attacking? Uh, England. Well, Pennsylvania. I'm, dude, I was kidding. True, true. Definitely hitting I know you were looking for a real answer. No. And I... <laughs> well, we'll get that in post production. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I'm but... leaving it. <laughs> so, but these groups would get smaller because they would get detected. And so when we think about, you read about a lot of the attacks and raids, they are going after what we would call today in the era of terrorism, soft targets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a soft target in 1750 is the, is the McGuire farmstead. Yeah. Don't attack my farm. It's not a soft target. You have no idea how booby-trapped this place is. You've got, you've got one shot, dude. You storm this castle, you are, you're about to meet your maker. Say your prayers. And that's what a lot of those guys and their families thought out on the frontier when they decided not to go hang out at a fort with, with their friends. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, I got this. And then it's funny because they'd go and the people at the little wooden fort would look out the distance and see the McGuire homestead, big black plume of smoke I'm coming up. attacked right now. <laughs> I'm going to go rob the Ambrose farmstead. Well, you know, I'll be back. Matt, you got the show. So... So they're, they're, they're hitting targets of opportunity, soft targets, individuals out and about, small farms, because they're not big groups. Right. And the French and their Indian allies, again, they're not going to stand and fight against a fort. When they get, even if they had 50 guys, and they showed up at Fort Frederick with muskets and potentially bows and arrows, and there's a three-foot thick stone wall, are they hmm. going to be super successful if there's 200 troops and four cannon? Come no. get no. some. Now... Oi, you got a little bow and arrow there. <laughs> now, I'm just going to sit inside this fort while you act like a jackass. I will tell you, and, and kind of, I guess, maybe skipping ahead a little bit, the French and Indians do, on occasion, raid at Fort Frederick. All right. But they never attack it directly. Mm. It never is attacked. It does its job. But in 1757, particularly, there are several instances where one a guard is shot at, there are people um, guarding the front gate, and I can show you where I think the musket ball hit the, the wall to this day. Oh, yeah. I want to mm. see that. Yeah, which is kind of neat. Um, Every time I go to this fort or you talk about this fort, I learn something new about it. Like, I'd known you for like three years, and you're like, by the way, you know, in the Civil War, they fired a cannon out of a hole in the wall here. I was like, three years into our friendship, you teach me this? Hey, it's a long, we got a long story. We got three centuries of history. Um, this is dope. <laughs> Let's go. So so we know we have a guard shot at. We have, have civilians killed near the fort. Um, we have a, a, a soldier has a sh- horse shot out from under him trying to take a message to Carlisle within a half a mile of the fort. So there's there's a lot of activity. It's not safe. I, I like to think of, you know, if or anybody's familiar with the Iraq war, we got to Baghdad and we created the green zone, which was the safe zone. That's what Fort Frederick is. It's a safe zone for the troops. But you go outside of the gate, it's not quite so safe. Right. At least potentially. So, but it is never directly attacked because these there's there's no major forces coming to attack Fort Frederick. So, back a little bit more about the fort itself. It's it's not only has it got this unique, awesome stone wall, it had three uh, big buildings inside the fort, which were very 
uh, different uh, than most frontier forts. You have two enlisted men's barracks. If you have ever seen a Western cavalry movie, you've ever seen a fort with barracks and it's two-story and got porches and stuff like that, that's what Fort Frederick is. We've got these two big, two-story, white, clabbered siding barracks with porches and nice windows and, and everything. It's it, And with glass in them, it's, it's very... Um, even some brick work on the brick guttering and stuff, stuff that's not typically done at a slapped up soldier built frontier fort. Fort Frederick is built by experienced quality, maybe not quality, I'm assuming quality, uh, craftspeople. This is like a military installation. Correct. Yeah. Like, I mean, not to like, they're meant kind to stick of the around. same thing, but yeah, this is built to be here for a while. It is meant to be built for a while. It is a, you know, again, using sort of a modern term, it's a fob. It's a, it's a forward operating base. Mm-hmm. That's what it's for. And so this building is, this fort is built by carpenters and miners who are digging the footer for the wall. The wall doesn't just stop at the dirt that you see today. It goes under the ground several feet. Right. Um, there's, like I said, carpenters, miners, masons. There's, there's all these different skilled people working on the fort because everybody's like, oh, the soldiers built this. It's like, well, at the time the fort's being built, there might be 150 soldiers. And yeah, they might have been involved in labor, but for the most part, somebody's got to protect the construction crew. You know, so these guys are out looking around, patrolling the area. So who builds the fort? As far as we know, these professionals, um, we know that they got some... Uh, I think carpenters from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, as far away as Lancaster. Um, I have read one family reminiscence of their ancestor being one of the Masons that built literally one of the bastions. Like they said that this is the bastion. It was like the Southeast bastion he built. Now, he may not have built it all himself. He may have had a crew. We don't know who all the builders were because there had to be a lot of hands involved. Because Do we have evidence of enslaved labor? We do not. That's interesting. It, it is. Um do we think that's potential? Yes, but there is no record of anybody being paid, you know, for the use of of, of slave labor. Wow. Um, so, again, professionally built fort, meant to last, as you mentioned. Um, so the governor's really, really, really wants this good. But the fort takes about eighteen months theoretically to build. But we have a. Uh, progress report from October of 1756. By October, all four bastions are complete. Most of the curtain walls, the long straight walls that that, that go between the bastions are at least partially complete. The two enlisted men barracks are done, and the timbers are cut for the officers' quarters. Wow. Um, So they've done a lot in what? four months. And then in classic construction fashion, the crew chief was like, let's downshift here, guys. We finished this job too early. <laughs> we need to, you know, at some point we're going to sit down with the colonel and be like, we might need another 8,000 pounds. This might take six more months. And and that happens. Yeah, I'm not joking. And I do not. <laughs> no, I know you're not joking. So, so the first problem that comes up is that probably by October, the weather is turning. Right. And you don't do at least not in the 18th century, because I just watched them do wall work, some restoration work on the wall over the winter. You don't do mortar work over the winter. It doesn't, It doesn't. at least not when they're using the actual lime and sand. And Yeah, not with the materials of the time. Right. Absolutely not. So by October, they may have had to stop, at least the wall work. Um, some of the other work could have continued. 
So that is an issue, work stoppage. The other thing is, is that we know Governor Sharp went at least two more times after the initial funding for more money. Hmm. So a lot of folks will say Fort Frederick was never completed because the last time, so I guess he goes two times successfully. The third time he goes back in, I think, November of 1757, the Maryland Assembly says no. No more money. They say, and again, a slight paraphrase, is that your fort is too big and you do not have enough men to defend what you got. You know nothing. <laughs> so some people have said that that means that the fort was never finished. To me, it means that he wanted to do more stuff that just didn't get done. The mm. fort that we have today, I believe, was completed. I think he wanted outer defenses and maybe some blockhouses or some stuff like that that didn't get built. But it's up for debate because we just we just don't know. We just know they cut the funding off. So by December of 1757, construction's done. We know there's the two enlisted barracks, the officers' quarters, better known as the governor's house, which served as the officers' quarters, the headquarters for the fort, as well as part of the building was the storehouse for the supplies. Um, again, built in a similar style to the to the enlisted barracks, but as one eyewitness to the building says, built with some taste, yeah. with arched <laughs> windows and doors. It's the front facing. Literally, you walk in the gate, and at the opposite end of the fort is the building you would see. So it is a public building, and you want it to look nice, give off that power sure. and, and, and whatnot. So that's sort of the fort construction. Um, between 17... In 1756 and 57, Maryland ends up raising four additional companies of troops, um, um, provincial troops. These are troops that are uniformed and paid by the colony. They are professionals, at least in the sense that they're actually getting paid and they serve an enlistment. I always like to compare them to the National Guard today, but we always compare the National Guard of today to the militia. Mm. of the era and the militia is a different beast they're they're compelled to fight theoretically they could find ways to get out of it but but these guys volunteered and enlisted usually for at least a year uh some longer some guys seem to be in the whole duration of the war that maryland actually has troops so they have these five companies typically two at fort frederick uh two at fort cumberland their fifth company doesn't stick around too long, um, I think, because their commander has better things to do, like being an um, Indian agent and uh, translator. He hmm. uh, seems to be his, more of his specialty. So, so they have the five companies, so about 500 troops. Uh, these guys will uh, serve until 1759, so from about some of them as early as 1754, uh, to 59. They're involved in the Forbes campaign in 58 that will eventually capture Fort Duquesne. Um, and the Maryland troops are involved in a little battle called um, Grant's Defeat outside of um, outside of Fort Duquesne and, and perform admirably and, and take a lot of casualties. They're involved in both of the skirmishes take place at Fort Ligonier and do well and take casualties. So these guys, you know, they don't get a lot of credit because we're a small colony I say we like I'm. I told you, you <laughs> are a Marylander. Just uh, accept no, it. No, I, you know it's not even that. It's more the fact that I, I act like that I was with them, like they're that I am uh, them. What state park? Uh, Fort Frederick. No, no, no. What state? Maryland. Maryland. Maryland state park. park Service. Mm. I, I love the Maryland Park Service. I, I love Maryland. I, 
There it is. End of the show, guys. Thank you for listening to the History Things podcast. That was the whole thing I wanted to get to. Good night, everybody. <laughs> this was the entire focus, just getting him to getting admit Getting him that. to admit it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess I'll see y'all later now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so these guys are involved in, in, in some major fame, but being a smaller colony, they don't get the press even today that Virginia does or Pennsylvania does. But these guys, they are involved in, in a, lot of, a lot of activity outside of, of the fort. Um, they do not just stay there. Another thing about the fort is it's not a civilian refuge. It is a military base. And as, as we can see in some records from different people, including at Fort Frederick, they said, you can't control civilians because you can't use military justice on them. Hmm. Well, tell that to the English. Oh, wait, we are. That's right. We're happy columns. I'm just saying waiting like you know, 20 or so more years, we're going to see a very different story here. <clears throat> yes, because of this whole whole conflict, which is a podcast in itself, probably yeah. a whole series. That's all right. We'll have you back. Um, so so they're, those guys are involved in all the campaigns. Uh, the fort, again, is, is, is well-constructed, never directly attacked during the conflict. One of its big moments, and then it has a couple, has a near-miss moment, but one of the big moments is in the spring, April of 1757, 62 Cherokee warriors we assume they're all warriors show up at the gate and walk in and literally say the fort is ours no <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> they said hey guys we want to be friends can we be your friends plot twist <laughs> yeah well no no it's not really a plot twist the, the southern indians the cherokee and catawba indians that live in north carolina tennessee uh south carolina those those areas typically ally themselves with the english at least for a while and um, they're, they're, the American Indians get a bad rap in a lot of ways. We've portrayed them poorly, but yeah. they're shrewd, too. Oh, yeah. So, so they come, they show up, and there's a whole other long backstory to, to why they show up at Fort Frederick, but they show up and said, hey, we want to be friends. We want to be allies with Maryland. Um, how do we do that? Take us to your leader. And, yeah, basically, um, and so they write a letter to the governor, and governor writes them back. Unfortunately, he's not in Annapolis at the time. He's in Philadelphia or something. So he can't actually come out and meet them, but he sends his two, like, personal secretaries. And when I say secretaries, yeah, they wrote stuff for him, but these are more like lieutenant governors almost. Like, yeah. these guys mm -hmm. can, can speak for the governor, or, or when they speak, they speak as the governor. And they come out, and there's a huge treaty ceremony that takes place at Fort Frederick at these, with these Cherokee Indians. Um, the one leader, his name is Wahatchee, and the other one is Yachtanu, and they're from two different bands. Um, Yachtanu is from Choda, which is near Fort Loudoun, Tennessee. Actually, Choda is now underwater. Oh. Uh, it's a reservoir. Mm. Uh, that's a whole thing. And, Are there uh, remnants of it underwater, or is it like completely washed out? I'm sure it's long gone. I know that there's some some markers that indicate TVA that it was there. Issue? Yeah, I believe it is TVA. Yeah. Tennessee Valley Authority flooded a lot of little battlefields and historical sites to bring electricity and whatnot to that part of the country. So yeah, they uh, they. Flooded. Are we mad about that, or was that like uh, it's it sucks, those, but it had to happen? It's one of those things where progress flattens history on occasion. I wouldn't say mad about it because, again, it did bring a lot of what was needed to that part of the world, but there's a lot of history that's underwater now, including sure. a number of Civil War battlefields. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so he's from, from Choda, and then um, Wahatchee, he's uh, one of the uh, 
South Carolina, lowland sort of Cherokee. And so these two different groups are together there. And they form an alliance with the colony of Maryland. And, and what makes this cool from the Maryland perspective, and we'll get a little bit of the, the American Indian perspective, is that Governor Sharp says, there's one thing I want you to do. Cue the Mythbusters music. I don't know what that is, but whatever the Mythbusters music is, that's what this is. Because here's Mythbusted. I was going to go with just dramatic suspense, but if this is a Mythbust, I'll look it up. Yeah. So Governor Sharp says, teach my men your ways of fighting. Ah. So the Marylanders in 1757, yeah, they've been on the frontier. Yeah, they've got some experience. But he literally asks the Cherokee to teach the Maryland soldiers how to fight and act like American Indians in the woods. Guess what? We weren't all born with coonskin caps. Wait, we're not all? Uh, who's the, who am I thinking of? Davy Jones? Davy, Davy Crockett. Crockett. Davy Daniel Crockett. Boone. Who's Davy Jones? Oh, I'm a pirate. I'm an idiot. Yeah. This would be Pat the Pirate coming out. Uh. Yeah. So, so he, that's the one only thing he asks of the Cherokee. Teach my men your ways of, of war, ways of fighting, something along those lines. And the Cherokee basically have a list of things they want. And they want things that they can't make. Stuff that's mm-hmm. made of metal and iron and certain materials that, that, that aren't, aren't, they cannot make or cannot make easily. Like they asked for, for wampum, which wampum are beads made from clamshells that the American Indians have used for millennia. But the English and the French have learned how to make them out of glass. Oh, okay. So they, they probably are actually asking for the glass wampum so that they don't actually have to make it. Um, but they asked for knives and, you know, pots and pans and that kind of stuff. And uh, the Yachtanu asks, asks for a brace of pistols. So he wants two flintlock pistols and a ruffled shirt. So do I. You know. <laughs> um, so then, again, things he can't get and things that make him look, they make them look good to their people. And a lot of the other things they ask for are like ribbons and earrings and bracelets. Now, some of that stuff they're going to wear. But a lot of this stuff is going to go back to the women. They're going to take back to their villages because in the Cherokee society, the women are, are it's a, a matriarchal society and they make a lot of decisions. So you want to, as a dude, you want to like get in good. Let's be real. All three of us are married. We live in matriarchal societies in our houses. And that's okay. Yeah. And, and that's true, but we, we don't <laughs> like to admit it. No. And our society is, and I think in many ways, has always been deep down run by by our, our female companions, but we just wouldn't admit it. Oh, yeah. Somewhere Edith Wilson is like, you're damn right we ran the show. <laughs> Dolly Madison, same story. Yeah, yeah. Dude, exactly. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Mary Todd. Well, oh, this list can go on for a oh, long time, yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah, we could go on and on and on and on. Um, Eleanor. Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. Was, yeah. Um, Barbara Bush. Just keep Abigail it going. Adams. Just keep Abigail, it going. for sure. Uh, I can't, I can't think of her name, but uh, Richard Yule, General Richard Yule's wife. Oh, you, Dickie Yule's wife? Oh, and I have to throw him out there real quick, just real quick since right, this came do up. It, do it. So Richard Stoddart Yule. Ricky. If you go back a few minutes into our conversation, there was a place called Stoddart's Fort. Right. That Lieutenant Stoddart is his granddad. Really? Is Richard Yule's granddad. I love connecting dots like that because Lo Armistead's uncle... 
is the Fort McHenry guy. Right. So it's cool to see family. And like, I mean, we're talking about George Washington, who's obviously, we've talked, not right in this moment, we've talked about him a bunch. He's like the most badass general in American history, not named Patton, but, you know, I'm just kidding, or Grant or Sherman or whatever. But, uh, you know, we're talking about him like long before the American Revolution. We're talking like 20, 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. Right. This is awesome to see these names in other places in history and kind of connect these dots. And like it is. That. It's funny. You mentioned Champions Hill. Yeah. At Champions Hill, there was a brigade, I believe, under a guy by the name of uh, Tillman. Mm-hmm. His, Marylander. Exactly. Yes. And we're talking patriots of the revolution. Tillman's, I think, might even sign his dad or granddad might have signed the declaration. That sounds right. I think that is correct. I have the, the declarations on my wall upstairs. I'll confirm it after yeah. recording. Um, another one that, that, that one of my friends always mentions uh, from the Civil War states rights guest. Oh, yep. yeah. He's got family buried right here in the like 20 minutes from where I'm living. He's got a uh, uh, Colonel Joshua is buried in Westminster um, who served in Washington's army. And then I think his brother Mordecai was a home guard, I guess you could describe him. He was part of the Maryland, mm-hmm. like stayed local, right. he stayed in state. But uh, he was a general in that structure, and I think he was part of defending around the Baltimore region. He's buried out that way, I think, for that reason. Right. See, names all over but the yeah, place, But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting when you look at your other, you know, look at your other eras of, of history, and you're going... That name sounds familiar. Dude, states' yeah, right. rights. What a name, by the way. You yeah. Know, there's a, they have a sister, I think, or, or somebody, another family member, a federal Anne. Federal, oh, so mm-hmm. states' rights and federal Anne guest. Like, Interesting. Good job, guys. Hey, way to, way to play both sides. <laughs> <laughs> um, Classic Marylanders. Oh, my gosh. I, How relevant is that, though? That's yeah, good. that's good. So you're talking about uh, Stoddard. Yeah, so so I just that was an int- it's an interesting and of course his let's see Tom, um, Thomas Stoddart's son get this right is Benjamin Stoddart who was the first Secretary of the Navy mm. and then of course then you go to Richard Stoddard Yule um, which is just neat to see these these connections throughout our our history um, I like that so let me see where where was I on. Uh, we were talking about the women that were sort of running the show. Uh, we were talking about oh, oh so the, 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 the Cherokee, the Cherokee. So yeah, yeah so they're they're getting so basically they get a list of, of things they want, and the governor says, "Teach my men to fight like you." And there's there's some drama and during some of this that, that that I won't get into, but but there's almost an incident that that almost ruins everything. But they get it worked out. But almost immediately, these Cherokees start taking. Maryland officers and a few Maryland soldiers at a time going out on patrols. And they're going as far as Fort Duquesne. Wow. And he's there. So they are teaching them how to, to fight like this. And this seems to, to pay off. And um, so this is continues for a while. The Cherokee kind of come and go. They seem to be around 57 and most of 58 uh, even some different groups, because one of the things that the the leader says, Wahatchee says something about, our track is narrow, but we will make it wide, meaning there are going to be more of us coming to see you. So with that, before the payoff, so why are the Cherokee wanting to be involved with Maryland and Virginia and Pennsylvania? Because they 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 end up making deals with basically all three colonies at one point or another. They do this for one simple reason. The Cherokee don't like the French allied Shawnee and Delaware. They're like mortal enemies since the dawn of time. 
Or at least that's the way it seems. Like England and France. Correct. <laughs> so they're like, hey, these guys are going to pay us to kill guys we're already wanting to kill. always at war with. So they're shrewd. And, and this was one of the problems in the, after, the aftermath of the war is that, that the, the Shawnee, the Delaware, the Cherokee, the Catawba, the Iroquois, whatever, you name the tribe, they were playing, in many cases, the English off of the French. When one of those goes away, there's no one to play off of anymore to keep the balance of power, to keep that American Indian land in Got between, it. so to speak. Yeah. So that, that's what ends up being one of the big things after the war is there's nobody for them to play off of anymore. They try it. And, of course, um, when General Amherst comes over here, he basically says, you're a defeated people. To his allies. Right. You're a defeated people, and we're going to treat you that way. <laughs> what? What? That would have been like... <laughs> They're the, like, bruh. That would be like <laughs> the U.S. marching into France after World War II and being like, it's ours now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I see what you're getting at, and that's, that's a hard... That's a bold disrespect move right there. Right. Yeah. And, and, I mean, don't get me wrong, the American, the later thing, but, but they were still France. They were no, still yeah, a yeah, country. Yeah, yeah. We just had a big thumbprint on it like look right. we kind of just you know look thanks for giving us the country we gave you yours back i'd say we're even but we're gonna stick around for a little while yeah but but <laughs> in this case it was yeah your stuff is mine now thanks. yes thanks that's like when i move into your sandbox yeah it's just mm -hmm. these are mine yeah these God, are mine damn so the cherokee alliance works really well and the reason we know it works really well is by the Forbes campaign in 1758 that, that takes down Fort Duquesne. There's, I think, 350 Marylanders at this point in, in the forces of the, of the English. Problem number one is the Maryland Assembly, guess what they won't do? Pay them. Pay them. Because guess where they got to go? Pennsylvania. Yeah. And they're like, they're leaving the colony. We're not paying them. We're not funding that. They're not defending us anymore. They're, that's the English's problem. So literally the commander, uh, General Forbes and Colonel Henry Bouquet, the two commanders of the British force, literally write to like William Pitt to the Secretary of War and go, or Secretary of State of Great Britain says, hey, there's only 350 of them and they're really good in the woods. Yeah. Like Can we good. take them on and pay as rangers for the, in, under the king's pay? And they're like, cool, yeah, you can do that. Now, the idea, and here's where a little bit of revolution backfires in, the idea was that Maryland would eventually reimburse the crown for the money they paid out initially. Mm -hmm. We're really good at not repaying debts. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he says we should keep them on the footing of rangers, and um, there are several references in, in, in the, the records between um, – talking about them dressing somewhat as Indians, as, as American Indians with breechcloths and woolen leggings and moccasins and long shirts and things like that. And even some of the more weird references, there's one where it talks about the Marylanders have one bad blanket and they're naked. They don't really mean they're naked. It's October in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. that probably means they're wearing a shirt, a breechcloth and leggings and moccasins. And that's not good. Anybody, you know, Western PA people know it starts snowing in September. It's snowing right now, probably, <laughs> in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Somebody just tune in from Pittsburgh and just tell us, like, is it snowing there right now? I'm sure it is. Yeah, so so these guys not only are being, they're being used as American Indians because one of the problems with the Forbes campaign is General Forbes 
decides he's not going to make the mistake that Braddock did, which was, and by the way, Edward Braddock is not as bad a guy in some respects as he's made out to be. He's a real jerk to the American Indians, and that's his biggest downfall. Yeah. But everything else about him, he was probably a good commander. That's my hot take. Rob uncensored, unfiltered, raw. So, so, but Forbes decides that he's going to build fortified, basically supply depots all the way out through Pennsylvania, which is now basically Route 30. And uh, it takes a while. He's got to build a road, and we've got to build forts. Well, the American Indians don't work that way. Right. They don't do sieges, per se. I mean, they will besiege something, but it's different. It's completely different than cannons and trenches and stuff like that. And they finally, basically, most of them, by the middle of the summer, are like, this is boring. <laughs> All you guys are doing is waiting them out. And you haven't gone anywhere yet. And it takes a while, you know, to get back to the Carolinas and Tennessee, so peace. And they leave. So they begin to have to use these Anglo-Americans as American Indians, basically, using them as scouts, using them as flankers, as, as you, you, you want to you wanna go no, there. No, you do it. No, I'm good. All right. Um, you know, they want to put them out there. And, and their commander, theoretically, their senior captain, who gets promoted to lieutenant colonel by the British... Uh, John Dagworthy ends up leading more or less the spear point of the Forbes advance. And these guys are with him. And some of the first, at least from my understanding, the first white people, Anglo people to see Fort Duquesne on the campaign when they see that it's blown up and the French have left are from the Maryland troops. Some Indians that are with them, I guess they're Cherokee, they're not clear, see it first and tell them. And then when they go, they're like, oh, whoa. It's like, so, you know, these guys are out there in the front. So this alliance with the Cherokee have made them into woodsmen. Hmm. Sick. Have made them into woodsmen. And that, to me, is the coolest thing about that whole whole alliance. First off, that we weren't all born with a rifle and a coonskin cap. <laughs> right. I mean, we're Americans, we were. You know what? I wish Eric Money from Addressing Gettysburg was here because of how much he sh- all over Maryland because he's a Pennsylvanian. Like, dude, while you guys were still being Quakers, we were learning how to be lumberjacks with rifles. Well, not rifles, but with guns. We're badass. Yeah. Um, now, Pennsylvania, we give them a little love here. By 58... Don't do it. Don't give They have love. troops involved, and they're manning forts, and they're part of the campaign, and Pennsylvanians, there are some that are with the Maryland, because basically Dagworthy ends up with this mixed unit... Of, of troops from regulars to Virginians to Pennsylvanians to maybe some North Carolinians if they didn't all get sick and die. Poor North Carolina. They really have some major issues when they... They're everywhere throughout time? Yeah, yeah. Um, they, but they're clearly involved, in, in it, and they've got troops out there, but they have a lot of guys that get sick and die there during the campaign. And I don't know, I don't know what the, the deal is really there. Um, but yeah, so yeah, Pennsylvania, yeah, they're doing stuff. They're they've got a much bigger force than than Maryland will ever raise, and they're clearly involved in the campaign. But yeah, I like this is kind of for me. It's that one moment that we I can really point to and say, look at this. That's awesome. Go Maryland. Yeah. Um, of course, as soon as Fort Duquesne falls, November, late November of seventeen fifty eight. By December, pretty much Maryland is said now. You guys got to come home, hmm. and most of them get basically. I think they're given leave more so than discharge 
discharge officially comes later. A lot of them, or some of them anyways, seem to then join the Pennsylvanians hmm. and join the Pennsylvania Provincials. So there are some, some in the Pennsylvania Provincials. Some join the British Regular Army. Um, uh, Lieutenant Stoddard ends up getting a, a, apparently gets a commission briefly in the 60th. Is at um, He's either in a Pennsylvania or a 60th. It's, it's not totally clear to me, but he ends up getting sick and dying. So that's short-lived. Uh, there's another guy, Lieutenant Gorell, who ends up a lieutenant in the 60th. Um, so there are Marylanders that, that go out and do other things, go to other colonies, or at least the, the Royal troops and some in Pennsylvania. The sad, almost near miss, the almost biggest greatness of Fort Frederick was Fort Frederick was almost the jump off point for the Forbes campaign. Really? Uh, really. Is you going to elaborate on that? I am. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a long, it's a pregnant pause. It's, it's in collecting my thought. And this trying is to, like a semicolon. Yeah. This is a hardcore. It's not even a comma. So it looks like there's a pretty good indication it's going to be. There's a lot of, lot of correspondence between Sir John St. Clair and Governor Sharp. Uh, Sir John St. Clair is the quartermaster for Forbes' army. He's, some people think he's worthless. Some people think he's great. I'm not sure where I fall. Um, probably not great, but not worthless. At least in terms of Maryland, because he seems to get along with Governor Sharp, so, you know, yeah. I'm a little He's biased in that case. okay. Yeah. He's okay. Serviceable. Um, so him and Sir John St. Clair going back and forth, talking about staging supplies and being the general rendezvous of the army. Two things seem to happen. In May of 1758, there appears to be a smallpox outbreak at Fort Frederick. Strike one. Strike two. There's this guy by the name of George Washington. Mentioned him before. Mentioned him before. He's, what, 23, 24 now? And he's highly opinionated. (laughs) He really wants Forbes' army to go through the Braddock Road and go through Virginia and Maryland to get to Pittsburgh because he knows that he who has the road wins the West and gets the trade. If the road goes through Pennsylvania... Maryland and Virginia is screwed. So he wants this. He's like, and the road's already there. All we got to do is clean it up. Yeah, we already have the King's Road, dude. Right. Um, it's not very in very good shape, but but it's still there. And that's where he wants to go. Well, Washington writes a letter that says, basically, that Forbes and Bouquet are kind of stupid because they don't want to use the Braddock Road. I don't understand what their problem is, why they're debating this. They should use, this, use the Braddock Road. They don't need to go through Pennsylvania. This is dumb. Guess who gets the letter? Ooh. Forbes. <laughs> ah. I'm not dumb. Yeah, you Forbes are. says some things about Washington, but at that point, by the time his letter is discovered, the road is now moved for sure from Virginia and Maryland into a full route through Pennsylvania. Now, the route through Pennsylvania logistically is probably better, but at the time before this happens, they are literally building a new road from Fort Frederick to Fort Cumberland. So there are troops from Maryland... Some Royal Americans, 60th foot, some North Carolinians, and maybe some Delaware guys, lower counties of Pennsylvania, building a road from Fort Frederick to Fort Cumberland. There's Virginians under Washington building a road from Fort Cumberland to Fort Frederick, so they connect both ends. They probably get between 5 to 10 miles from completing the darn thing when they said, never mind, we're going to Pencil- through Pennsylvania. Hmm. So... George Washington may have... Had a stroke. May have screwed Fort Frederick out of its claim to fame. 
All right, you know what? I've said a lot of nice things about George on this show, but I think it's time that we change the tone on old Georgie boy here. Look, I, I love George Washington. We're going to change the tone in about 20 years, though, because yeah. revolution. George Washington is, is, is a great leader. George Washington learns from all of his mistakes. He never commits the same mistake twice. But he hmm. does commit a lot of mistakes, so he's very smart. That's not true. But, well, I mean, he is smart. Some but. people say if you break something... It's because you were doing something. If I you like don't it. break anything, you weren't doing anything. So he's done a, does a lot. I, me and George, very kindred. So I, I do. So anybody thinks I, I'm down on George Washington, I'm not. But in this, in the in the 1750s, in relationship to Maryland, yeah, yeah, we don't like him. No. <laughs> he does come to Fort Frederick. George Washington. So an actual place George Washington has been to, because you know we have a lot of those. He stopped and ate breakfast here signs. So yeah. So hilarious. apparently, and I don't know if he stayed overnight or not. There's so some, no breakfast confirmation. There's some some debate on that. But in 1756, when they're building the fort, he does show up and meets with Governor Sharp, and apparently talks about how great the fort he's building in Winchester is going to be, which is made out of wood. God damn it, George! Like it's not always about you, man. <laughs> and apparently, also when the smallpox outbreak happened. The Virginians were actually going to come to Fort Frederick and garrison the fort to relieve the Marylanders so that they could move west, and then I guess eventually the Virginians would move west. But that does not happen either. But he does actually come to Fort Frederick once, and yes, when it comes to Maryland, he's he's not our favorite person. But as a historian, as an interpreter, yeah, he is the only he's the one of the few points of reference that you can make with the lay public to relate to the French and Indian War. Sure. Yeah, I you, mean, you can mention you mentioned George Washington, and then things you can open up from there. Uh, so yeah, I love George. I love the Virginia Regiment and all that stuff. Wasn't but, real quick before we leave, like the Monongahela and like the French and Indian War in a few minutes here. Wasn't part of that Braddock expedition? Doesn't that feature one of his counterparts in the American Revolution too? Isn't one of the Gateses there uh, on Braddock's staff? Like some some or Thomas Gage. Gage. Did I Thomas say Gates? Gage. Gage did say there. Gates. Sorry. Uh, there's, there's, so Gates, talking about people that, that we'll hear about later, you've got Gates, you have Washington, you have Daniel Boone, you have Daniel Morgan. Um, and was I've, absolutely captured at one point, so he was definitely defeated at some point. And, to that man. Yeah, both, both Daniel Boone and uh, Daniel Morgan both cut and ran. They were both Wagoners, young guys, like in their teens, and when everything hit the fan, they literally cut and ran. So he's been defeated multiple times. Dude, I'm just yeah. going to shred this fought everywhere, and defeated nowhere crap. Like, dude, you were captured in Montreal, or was it, Co or Co I don't know, Battle and, of Quebec. And he's the captured at Battle of Quebec. Right. And I think it was during the campaign, Braddock campaign, that this is when Boone gets his, no, I mean, sorry, Daniel Morgan gets his complete <laughs> hatred for the English, because I think apparently he gets hit with a sword by an officer. That really hurt. Like, maybe when he was trying to run, I, there, there's some sort of, Something happens and along those lines. I have to admit that also as a lover of Daniel Morgan, I should know that better. But, but that's how he literally holds that grudge for the rest of his life. Whatever exactly it was, but something that made him hate the English. A few years ago, the first time I said that, so he was been defeated before, you hated that so much. I, was, I think I was in Winchester at his monument, and I was like, wasn't he captured someone? You were like, dude, don't. Daniel Morgan does not approve. <laughs> yeah. That's what you said. Yeah, you were like, dude, don't. He does not approve. Yeah. It's like, uh -uh. I still have that meme somewhere I yeah. made. <laughs> it's all right. We'll talk about the meme I made out of you one day. Yeah, Even man. history, bro. That's right. So, so yeah. So, they, they defeat the French in this case. The French retreat because there's only a couple of hundred guys left in Duquesne by the time the, the British get there. 
So in a way, it's kind of anticlimactic. The French burst, blow up the fort, burn it down, and leave before the English get there in, in 58. So again, the Marylanders are disbanded. Some of them do go back to Fort Frederick, and they stay there until about April of 1759, and they literally lock the gate and walk away. Hope somebody has the key. The key is left in the care of Dr. Henry Heinzman, who was the surgeon for the Maryland troops. Um, and he is basically leased... He's leased the fort. I think he's not really leased the fort. He's leased a... There is a building. There is a home outside of the walls of the fort that apparently belongs to the colony that he leases, and he is the caretaker. So he probably doesn't pay for the house. The lease is probably... You take care of the fort, you which, stay the and house. you can stay in the house. Where, yeah. where on the modern-day park property do we think that house was? We're not sure, but I have some indication that it may have sat directly west of the fort near where the parking area and the concession store is today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I can't confirm that, but I've seen pictures of that building being removed in the 1930s, and it's got some pretty old log features and whatnot underneath all of the 19th and early 20th century additions. All right. So it's potentially that building. Um, so he's the caretaker. He's there to make sure that basically nobody walks away with the fort. 1763 rolls around, which is the end of the French Indian War, the end of the Seven Years' War. The French and the English... Um, have a piece of pair, a piece, a piece of Paris. They say just time out for a little bit. We'll do this again later. Yeah. So <laughs> they they sign the piece of Paris. Uh, there is a um, Indian chief named Pontiac. I think he's in Ottawa, mm-hmm. and he's out in the Michigan area. Yep. Oh God. Out near Detroit. Oh, oh we're, God. We're, we're very we, familiar with him. Here we go. And I won't. I won't. Which is a whole awesome story in itself, but we're going to gloss over the the, 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 the details. The here. Michigan part, right? That, yeah, unfortunately. We're going to gloss over Michigan. It's fair in this in this situation. In, in this situation. Matt is dying right now. I know, I know. And and I, I Pontiac's Rebellion is, is, is what and what it's known as. So yep. let me back up. It's super cool. So he, he basically writes he he gets together with a, a bunch of other American Indians and sends out messengers basically saying, let's shun the ways of the Anglos and the French and let's just go to war. Do our own thing. We're going to take it back. We're going to the streets. We're going to take it back. We're going to go after these guys. All right. You were mentioning that uh, American Indians don't do siege operations like we're familiar with, Pat. Pontiac's really good at siege operations. But it's not... It's not a it's not an Anglo siege. Right. It's, it's completely different. Exactly. Um, so Pontiac basically forms a confederation of tribes to fight this war, either known as Pontiac's War, Pontiac's Rebellion, an older version that doesn't really go out there, but some people call it Pontiac's Conspiracy. Hmm. Uh, but I think that term really kind of goes out in the early 20th century. Um, yeah, I hadn't heard that one yeah. before. But Pontiac's Rebellion is, is one of the big ones, or Pontiac's War. And they start attacking all of these newly acquired English forts from as far away as Green Bay, Wisconsin, yep. to as far east as um, Presque Isle and Fort LeBeouf in western Pennsylvania, um, Sandusky, Ohio. They lay siege to Fort Detroit, mm-hmm. um, which is a city, but it's a fortified city. Detroit. 
Um, they they lay siege to uh, Fort Pitt, the new fort that the that the English have built at the site of Fort Duquesne in Pittsburgh. They burned down what becomes Chicago, if I remember right. That that may be true. Yeah, they did get some stuff in the Illinois country. Um, they even sort of lay a loose siege on at one point on Fort Ligonier mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, and there seems to be some activity even as far east as as Fort Bedford. Wow. Um, and there's even some activity on the frontiers, generally speaking. There are apparently some attacks in western Maryland and, and southwestern Pennsylvania and, of course, in Virginia, western Virginia, um, between all these tribes attacking all these different settlements and, and forts. And they take seven or eight forts, like, right off the jump. I mean, like, because, first off, the English have acquired all this territory, and they have to put troops in them. Well, we're going to put a sergeant and five guys here, right. a lieutenant and 20 guys here. You know, So all these different forts, they're easy prey. In yep. most part, because they have no idea it's coming, You know, Pontiac didn't announce on Twitter that he was doing this. <laughs> and um, they, do some, they do some tricky stuff at some of the different forts that fall, but, but that's not the point of our story. So by July of 1763, things are, are pretty intense around Detroit and Pittsburgh and, and Ligonier and whatnot, and, and it's moving further east. So Governor Sharp writes to um, Dr. Heinzman at Fort Frederick and to Colonel um, Prather, the local militia commander near Fort Frederick, and says, open up the fort. I'm sending you guns. I'm sending you ammunition. Open up the fort. Get the militia ready, get your alarm stations out, start patrolling, put a garrison in the fort, and by the way, let the civilians in. Hmm. And the cool thing about this is why we know it's military fort too. It says, let them in, but they are not allowed to harm anything. Don't let them do anything ridiculous, and if they do, you kick them out. <laughs> we got to keep this place. Gotta don't keep touch nice. anything. Right, don't touch anything. Are they going to allow them into one of the two big barrack spaces or just the courtyard? We assume that they were everywhere. Okay. Um, the fort, you know, the, the, the militia garrison, if they're, you know, probably isn't very large with all the civilians in there. There are probably people living in the parade field and, you know, mm-hmm. different stuff. Um, local tradition states that there are 700 settlers and militiamen in the fort. Wow. So it would be pretty packed. Now, yeah. there might be some staying right outside the walls or, you know, whatever. But we know that they were allowed in there. And the fort was open periodically, or people were in there, periodically from July of 1763 until sometime in 1764. Hmm. Um, some, some are there for a few weeks, and they leave and go home, and then some people come back. It's sort of like one of those, if you feel scared, come, on come here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a shelter. And so they seem to be coming in for almost a year off and on. So, but for a while, particularly for a few weeks, I think from like July till August, September 63, there's a big presence there. Um, they mainly start leaving after the Battle of Bushy Run takes place mm. when uh, Henry Bouquet's uh, forces uh, defeat uh, a group of Indians at near Bushy Run Station, uh, not too far from Pittsburgh. They're trying to break the siege of Pittsburgh. And this battle ends up basically being what more or less breaks the siege. They realize that these guys are coming. Uh, it's the only time a bayonet charge was ever used against American Indians. Oh, and it really? worked. Um, they used a, a tricky little plan. They basically used the uh, double inflating uh, fight. They had some guys out to get attacked, and they retreat. 
Oh, just, you know, follow us, everyone. Yeah, and they're more or less up around the edges. It's and a trap. They come in, and the Highland troops and everybody that's with them basically bayonet charge roughly into them, and they, they, they run away at that mm. point. Um, so they did sort of use American Indian tactics with Anglo bayonets. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. It's brutal. Yeah, yeah, it's very brutal. And, you know, Highlanders and, and American Indians, that's a... That's a uh, that's a fight right there. Yeah, it's a Those fun are two, mix. Yeah, fun mix of people going at each other. Um, very very tough warriors in their own right. You said Highlanders. Yeah. Like the Scots Highlanders. Yeah. 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 I just want Frasers. To Frasers. I just want an excuse to do the Scottish accent. And there goes our listeners from the UK. No, we actually. I was <laughs> so just shout out to our our uh, our overseas listeners, especially in the United Kingdom. I was looking at our stats recently. We have a pretty like sizable chunk of listeners hanging out in the United Kingdom. I, it's so pleasantly surprising. It's awesome. <laughs> so thanks for tuning in, guys. We we love it. So after the uh, Pontiac's War goes um, ends and um, peace sort of returns to the to the colonies. Things start rolling again. Um, there's the Proclamation of 1763, which says no white settlers over the, the, the Allegheny Mountains. Right. Um, there's all these taxes that are being levied, um, or at least being co- trying to be collected now. Um, there's a lot of things going on, a lot of unrest in the colonies in the 1760s and early 1770s. Who knew? Right. Hmm. A lot of this taxation, I just want to throw this out there, a lot of this taxation, that representation that people want to talk about, is all because the colonies wrote many agreements, agreed to many things where the crown would pay for something up front, yeah, and, and then you would, would pay, pay it them back. back. That's what I mean. Like the the crown footed the bill for the defenses and the the troops and all that stuff, and they're just like you know doing this totally reasonable thing. Like, so you're gonna hold up your end of the deal and pay us back? So the colonies, we were like, no, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. This is America, be- son. Because the no, colonies, it's not yet. Were, I know it's gonna well. be, it's gonna be America, son. <laughs> That's George Washington's new accent once he decides to be an American. Wow, okay. the Dodge commercial. Can I ask a dumb the, question the, about that's George? A hilarious commercial. Whether driving, I do love that commercial. <laughs> Can I ask you a serious but probably dumb question? Just because I don't think I think I've thought it a lot, but I don't think I've ever asked it out loud. Does George Washington have an English accent? Like, do we have any speculation on, like, what his voice actually sounded like as far as the traditional American accent, I guess, that we're speaking with? So, or did he sound more like a colonial it Brit? It depended on who he's hanging out with. Yeah, it's... It, and where he learned to talk from. Yeah, I'm going to say it's he's definitely more English-sounding than we do. Right. Okay. Um, but he is an American. I mean, he's born in America. He's, he's the an, first American. Um, he is an American, and that's one of the reasons, that's a whole other aspect of his life. He wants to be English. Yes, he does. And, but he <laughs> never quite get, gets accepted in the way. He wants to be a British officer. Yeah, no, And I Braddock know. supposedly tells him, I'm going to get you a commission. And then Braddock dies. dies. Yeah, and that, that messes that up. So I think Washington's accent is going to be definitely more English-sounding than we do today, but I have a feeling that it's not going to be as clean as as good queens or king's english in this case right. mm. yeah i mean he's going to have some sort of an american accent i think to it we've been here long enough i mean you figure people have been living in this country white english colonists um 100 years plus at that point right yeah you're looking at what 100 almost 200 years yeah, yeah. 160 
yeah. years, whatever. So I'm sure there is there is some development of that. It's kind of like the further south you go, the more southern someone's accent is, I think, you know, in some respects. It's weird. There's also, like, the further north you go, yes. you also yeah. get southern accents now. It's so weird. Oh. Have you ever been to Pennsylvania? You think those people were from Texas? <laughs> well, I was thinking about Massachusetts. No, I know, but no, no, New I England. Know. In reality, no, you, the regional regional accents absolutely start yeah. to develop at this time. But so I wonder how many people have thought that. And I apologize if the, if the listeners out there are like, "That's a dumbass question," but I don't really think it is because it's just something I don't think you think about a lot. Yeah, I I, I tend to think that's not as not as British sounding, not as you know, was that or the BBC English as we call it. I wish I could <laughs> do a Texas slash. British accent simultaneously. I just assume that other countries just assume we all sound like we're from Texas. So they do. No, I know. <laughs> what did I send? Did I send you this the meme of Prince Harry the other day? It's like, so what did you? Oh, what have you been doing yeah. since you've been an American? It's like the other day I deep fried a loaded gun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, yeah, we're awesome. <laughs> so we are. We're at this point in time now where essentially the crown is. Asking for its money back, and we're starting to have a problem with that because reasons. Um, and in the 1760s and 1770s, we start to enter these, like, not like outright resistances, but there's pushback against this. There's turmoil. There's upheaval amongst the colonies. It's not just isolated to specific areas anymore. It's kind of like people in, in the Georgia and Carolina colonies are like, yeah, I kind of agree with the New England colonies, and Maryland's probably down here straddling both sides of the fence because that's what we do. <laughs> um, literally, every every era that we're going to talk about probably on the show where we're talking about Maryland, it's sitting on both sides of this. So and it's Because it's smack dab in the middle. That's yeah. true. Stuck we, in the middle with you. We are the ultimate border state at all times in history. Hmm. So even when we're a border colony. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely lots of, there's committees of correspondence and safety, and there's a Liberty Tree in Annapolis and all this stuff. But yeah, it's, we're definitely, as Maryland, as a colony, is definitely, yeah, like you said, almost the ultimate border state. We are, uh, for, the, for the casual listener, if you like sports, Maryland is a fair weather fan. We're like, oh, yeah, go, uh, go England. And then it's like, we're going to win the revolution. They're like, I was in from day one, baby, independence. <laughs> and then, you know, like in the Civil War, we're like, uh, go Confederacy. And then by 1862, we were like, psych, 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 totally kidding. <laughs> Not, we were just joking. We were never, it was just Baltimore, guys. We were like, Union forever, down with the trainer. Like, we're just singing Battle Hymn of the Republic like, anytime <laughs> we see anybody. And then, like, look at their sports teams now. Their teams are good. They freak out. But the moment, like... Orioles fans a few years ago, and you can test to this because you're an Orioles fan. I am an Orioles fan. A few years ago when, uh, when uh, who's the guy you paid a million dollars to for nothing? Chris Davis. He hit all those home runs, and everybody was freaking out. And then, like, two seasons later, you guys, like, were 20 games back, 10 games into the season somehow because that's what you guys do. <laughs> that's But, true. like, <laughs> Orioles fans were nowhere to be found. Like, this year right now, there's a four-way race for the AL East. The Orioles are, like, conveniently nine games back. Like, we threw a no-hitter, though. I mean, you did. That was a great. John means that was a great game. But Maryland, I always joke historically, whether it's sports or military or political history, we are like the worst fair weather fan. We're we're, we're after our own interests, guys. That's basically the lesson on Maryland. Just apply it to whatever era you're studying. And that's the lesson of the American Revolution, or at least the outbreak <laughs> of it. It was about our own interests, whatever that may be. Everybody may have different interests, but. The taxation, it may have been um, their business interests or, you know, the, the loss of revenue or different things stepping in. And again, it's unfortunately, as much as I hate to say it, it's rich man's war, poor man's fight. Yeah. yeah. But it 
made the greatest country in the world. I, uh, will, I, I hit I, it. Play the national anthem. Go get Ronald Reagan. I agree. This is America. But no, I do love this. It yeah. is awesome. But, so let's fast forward a little bit, in, in just for the sake of time. So, so war is starting to break out. You know, in the 1773, we have uh, obviously the famous Boston Tea Party, and like it's starting to get real hot. 1775, we have Lexington and Concord, right? Like the shot heard around the world. Like we haven't declared independence yet, but the war is on. You know, the year plus later, the Declaration of Independence is written and signed, and officially we are acting as a sovereign nation. No longer are we just looking to stay a part of the family and just kind of run our own show. Now we're like, screw you! We're out of here! It's America time! Um, what is happening at the fort right around, sort of in the years between the Tea Party and the Declaration? Like, get us into the Revolution now. Yeah, so... During those years between 64 and, we'll say, 75, the kind of the beginning of the revolution, not much is happening at Fort Frederick. <laughs> um, it is just sitting there, as best we can tell. We lose track of Dr. Heinzman for a while. He ends up at one point in debtor's prison, and people actually try to get him out. He's like, nope, I'm staying. <laughs> wow. Um, I guess he was proud. I don't know. So I, we don't really know what's exactly happening we do know there is one reference that in 1775 the committee of safety is going hey we need to look for guns and stuff in the colony and they're like oh yeah there's cannons and some muskets and ammunition stuff at fort frederick we should go get that just sitting there <laughs> yeah so what I, kind of shape are they in well that's a great question my assumption is it's the four cannon from the fort and then some some muskets and stuff and there was a couple other places that they mentioned in this list you know i think there's still stuff in cumberland and they're like, hey, go, we should go get that. So that's one of the reasons our confirmation, people used to argue that we, the cannons never made it to Fort Frederick. And it's like, there's pretty good confirmation that in 1775 going, hey, they're there. They're there. Yeah. We should go get them. We need to, yeah. So that's the first reference to the fort during the war years. Hmm. So war breaks out. You mentioned 76. We're full-fledged <laughs> into this thing. 1777, uh, America gets their first real outside of... Trenton gets their first real victory. Yeah. And of course, guess who's not involved? Is it is it George? <laughs> yeah, Washington's not there. Hey, this is America now. You gotta speak positively about George, I, all right? I, it's 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 weird because when you I think watch your mouth. when I think revolution and in the victories, you think always George Washington. He is not. Yeah. It's no. General General Gates, Granny Gates, uh, one of Washington's nemesis. Right. Um, wins the Battle of, of Saratoga, theoretically. <laughs> I mean, I think Arnold, Benedict Arnold, and, and the troops win the battle, but Gates is the overall commander, so Isn't he gets the credit. Isn't that where the only monument to Benedict Arnold is, is at Saratoga? That is correct. And it's like a name, his name's it's not on name it, right? right. So the hero of Saratoga. It's right. just his boot. It's mm -hmm. boot, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't say that. You can't say his name. Eggs Benedict. Yeah. Loser. Benedict um, Cumberbatch. <laughs> Not Great Benedict, actor. But not Benedict Arnold. So we win, and we capture this army, this army of, of, of uh, General Burgoyne's at Saratoga. Gentleman Johnny. And we have this problem. We have prisoners. Where the hell do we put them? Several thousand prisoners. And they immediately got to figure out where do we put them. And, and this has been an issue already with some of the other battles and stuff, even... Even when the Lexington and Concord happened, the retreat to Boston, we actually captured some British guys, and we had to figure out what to do with them. Um, but so they're like, "What do we do with all these guys?" Can we go? No. Typically, that's <laughs> what you do. Typically, <laughs> they're paroled, yep. 
And in this case, they would be sent back to England, never to fight in North America again. There's a couple. There's, sure. There's a couple issues here. One, Congress. Two, Great Britain. Yeah. <laughs> Congress doesn't want to give up the prisoners because they're pretty sure that they will come back and fight. Yeah. Also, because there's prison ships and stuff in New York, and there's some right. bad treatment, they're like, you know what? We're going to keep these guys. Great Britain also does not recognize American sovereignty. American sovereignty. So if they would get into a deal with the United States of America to get those prisoners, guess what they are admitting to? They're acting right. in diplomatic negotiation. Correct. Yo, this is a chess game, guys. <laughs> it is. It's a chess game. And and so well, we're playing checkers because this is America. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's sort of a tit for tat thing, and and in some cases locally officers would work on paroles and stuff, but in this case, everybody digs in their heels, and it's not going to happen. So these guys are known as now the convention army and the convention prisoners, because there was a convention, so to speak, written, but it never got done with. Well, they're trying to figure out what to do with them. They end up moving around. I think they're in Boston, um, outside of Boston for a while. They end up sending them to Charlottesville, Virginia. Hmm. A lot of them. They end up in other places, too. Now, did they divide up the Convention Army? Because there's a whole bunch of Hessians in it, too. So Hessians, excuse me. They, they I thought it was right at Hessians. Hessian, Hessian. Tomato, tomato. Which one is Christopher Walken? You could just say German. <laughs> German's probably more accurate. Um, yeah, because they're not all from Hessia. Right, which, exactly. Um, but they've been colloquially known as, as the Hessians. Um, so, yeah, they do split them up some, but they're British and German prisoners that are sent to Charlottesville, Virginia, hmm. because at that point, Charlottesville seems like a long way away from the war. Yeah. It's happening in South Carolina. It's happening up north in New York and Massachusetts. Albemarle County, Virginia seems like a good place to go. So they send them there, and uh, so they're there for a while. Winter, like December of 77, January of 78, um, guy by the name of Samuel Hughes is now sent to Fort Frederick to look and see if it would make a good place convenient to put prisoners. And he goes out and looks at it and he writes a report and says, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but we could do it. But it's freaking huge. But it's freaking huge. So quote, so (laughs) at some point, apparently there is no more caretaker because by the time Hughes is there in 76, 77, He's talking about the officer's quarters has no siding up about six feet. Um, so it's just studs on the outside. Mm-hmm. He talks about the officer's quarters not having a second floor, literally a floor, not the story. The floor is gone. Is this through like degradation or is this because people have scrapped it for it firewood and various like other things? Yeah. It is the Five Finger Home Depot. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People in the area. All over the place have bits of Fort Frederick on their homes. Correct. <laughs> There's stones missing. They're... Do we know today if there are any pieces of the fort identified off-site, like in towns like Hagerstown, that are, which were close enough to maybe see some of these raw materials? Besides a few stones. Or scavenged materials, rather? Besides a few stones, no. But we figure, yeah, if we could find some good 18th century, you know, like mid to late 18th century homes in the area, we could probably find some some reused fabric because we know that that's what they were more than likely what they were doing with the boards off the building. They left the nails. Hmm. The guy's mm-hmm. like, you can reuse the nails. They're still here. They took the boards because it was cut lumber. That's awesome. They took windows. They took doors. 
Because he's like, we're going to have to plank up these door, or these windows. We're going to have to put some doors in. We're going to have to do some of this stuff because it was t- taken for building materials. Some guy knocked part of the wall down so he could back his wagon up his, to get the supplies, the stuff out, where the Sally Gate should have been. His Dodge, you know, Ram, physically a Ram that he named Dodge, <laughs> who's pulling a cart. He backed it up and was like, hey, we got to get all this out of here. Yeah. So, so they know they're going to have to repair the wall. They know they're going to have to do some work. But he's like, yeah, we can do it. He said, we can knock on a floor in this building. And he, he mentions that the, the backs between the fireplaces and some of the rooms are, because there's fireplaces are back to back, two different fronts. And he's saying that the backs have burned out. They're gone. Mm. They're like, yeah, we can just use them as one big fireplace and different things. So he, he gives us a pretty good description of what the fort looked like at that point and gives us some of our details of, of how we rebuilt, reconstructed the barracks that are there are based off of his, his letter. Um, he also mentions it being winter that the, where the holes knocked in or the, the sections knocked out of the wall, he says, we're going to have to put up some, some stockade wall here because we can't do mortar work this right. time of year. Because it's the winter. Because it's the winter. Talks about the well in the fort. He mentions a well outside of the fort. He mentions it has water. So he feels pretty good about it. He said, the only thing is there's no lumber, like no trees for firewood on the property. Wow. Which makes sense. When it was in use... They cut the trees down, one, so that they could see right. for the artillery range of a half a mile, and two, for firewood. So they literally had to buy firewood from a firewood vendor. Yeah, they had them back in the 18th century. Who knew? We still hmm. got them now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, can I get a cord? He's like, you think that's all we're going to... We're probably going to need a lot more than a cord. There's like thousands of people coming Yeah, here. but they, they <laughs> talk about... Two ab- cords. And they talk about buying cords of wood, where they're going to buy it from. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Because they don't have it there. And they mentioned that you, that there were a couple of buildings still outside of the fort. And they said, you know what? If we move them up, I don't know where down was, but we move them up, these buildings would be good for quarters for the guards outside of the fort. Um, so I don't know if they were big buildings or they're just like, well, here's two buildings. It'd be two less we've got to you know build. But they, they talk about moving some buildings. So he's like setting the stage for the, for, the, for the use. He's saying, here's my report. Do what you want. By spring... Probably April, May of 1778, the first prisoners and guards arrive at Fort Frederick. Where did they come from? I don't know. Really? <laughs> I don't know where the prisoners exactly came from at this point. Um, the guards initially are the survivors of the Virginia, Maryland Rifle Regiment, a.k.a. Rawlings Rifle Regiment, that uh, took their lickens during the uh, New York New campaign. York campaign. Yeah. The, they were at... The Immortals. Yes. Um... I always get it confused. I guess they were at Fort Washington, and they sort of apparently held out to the last so everybody else could escape. Right. Um, Colonel Rawlings was wounded. Um, he was exchanged. And according to some some accounts from some of the, the veterans, they were in captivity for weeks into months, and then were they were paroled. But this was like a local parole. Like, this wasn't run through big UK government, big American government. This was a local thing, so they got paroled. But the idea was they were paroled, so guess where they sent them? Where's a great place to send guys that can't fight in your war anymore? We'll send them to the Fort Frederick to guard prisoners. So Rawlings has the, the survivors. He tries recruiting more troops. He actually gets some bounties to try to get more men to help build up his regiment of troops. Now, some of his men have been distributed to other regiments and whatnot because they're involved with Daniel Morgan's rifles and, and whatnot. Um, but they're there. So those guys are the first guards of the prisoners. They're there for about a year guarding prisoners. Um, but again, there's there's a large number of prisoners that seem to come through in the hundreds. 
But where exactly they came from is very sketchy because if you read the the, the pension records, and of course these guys are getting, writing in these pensions in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. They're pretty darn old guys. Right. Some of their memories are off. Some of them are saying they're at the fort two years before the fort was in use. They're saying they're in 76. Hmm. Um, some of the guys, one guy literally says, I was here with my brother, and him and his brother both left pension records, and they both contradict each other. Oh, good. Um, his brother, brother's like, I hadn't seen my brother in years. <laughs> <laughs> I think they both verify that they were there, but the date. Yeah, no, I And it's know, like, uh, so, so that's a little sketchy where the prisoners are coming from at this point. But they're, so 78, 79, the, the rifle regiment is there. They get orders in, I think, May of 79 to go west to Fort Pitt. Again, I think this has still got to do with their parole. They're not going to be with the main army anymore. They're going to go out west and fight against English allied American Indians for the most part and, and British troops too. So they get sent out there, but I don't know if it was by choice or, or what, but Rawlings stays on at the fort as the commander um, and his men leave. Most of them do anyways. I think a few of them stay on, a couple of the officers and whatnot. But for the most part, the regiment goes out to Fort Pitt. Um, they're out in the western part of the campaign. I always think it's kind of neat that there's, a, there's this little connection between Fort Frederick and Fort Lawrence, Ohio, the most western um, American for the Revolution. Some of the rifle regiment men who had been at Fort Frederick are stationed at Fort Lawrence the last few weeks that it's around before the mm-hmm. Americans abandon it. And I was like, wow, so from... From one backwater to the other. Um, I, and of course, and it was just one of those, I went out to Fort Lawrence one day, I had no idea, and I'm like reading the history, and I was like, whoa, there's a direct direct connect between these two, these two kind of unknown forts of their eras. Um, then militia guys are brought in, county militias, some local, some from other parts of Maryland to guard prisoners. At one point, the supply situation is so bad that the... the Colonel Rawlings says, all right, I can't feed them, I can't clothe them, and we're getting too many in here to house them. I'll rent them out. Hmm. Now, I don't know if Rawlings actually gets any any money out of the deal, but basically he leases out, lets out, however you under under parole, the prisoners that are at the fort to local, as they said, good wig farmers to be basically... Labor. Labor. I won't say more like indentured servitude than slavery because in some cases they are making money. And even when they're at the fort, they make money. We find accounts of where British soldiers are being paid for doing repair work and stuff on the, on, on the fort. But the key is they're not like, even though they're getting slightly compensated here and there, it's like, well, can I go home? No. <laughs> like that's a key part of that. Correct. They can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, oh, can I just, can I have another, another pence? We don't call them pence in this country, brah. Actually, I'm pretty sure we still did. No, we did at that time. <laughs> Continental dollars, baby. Yeah, that's right. Before George. George ain't, was like, you know whose face would look good on this? Ain't, yeah. Ain't worth a Continental. Mine, baby. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so he's got them out. And for the most part, it seems like most of the prisoners are gone from the fort for <laughs> quite some time. And then either true or overblown, there are accounts of them causing some problems in the neighborhood. I don't know how much neighborhood there is in 1778, 79, or 79 and 80 around Fort Frederick, but maybe it's bigger than I thought. 
There's not a lot of neighborhood around there now. That's what I was going to say. Right. <laughs> what? Right. Well, and, and that's the thing. That actually is one of the reasons that it's, it, it's counterintuitive to me. That it's, they find it harder to put prisoners away from population centers than to have them in population centers. Because apparently, if you put prisoners in a town or a city, there are more people watching them and you need less guards. Again, counterintuitive. If I'm building a prison, where do I want to put it? As far away from people as possible. Yeah. Right? So because we don't want them to do bad things. Right. So, and again, I, I don't, I didn't picture the British prisoners being, you know, modern criminals or anything. But, but the idea that to, no, to me it's the, counterintuitive. the concept is the same is to keep your, right. your perceived threat or something further away from your gen pop areas, your Correct. general population areas. And I think it also has to do with supply. You know, it's easier to get supplies in the town and the city where now you've got to chuck it out there. Sure. Um, but they start moving them to places like Fort Frederick and to Charlottesville and to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, having prisons in the, because it's further away from the coast. Ah, we want the prisoners far away from the coast because where are the British operating? Off, off the coast right. or on the right. coast, yeah. So eventually that's one of the reasons that the Saratoga prisoners end up at Fort Frederick. There's a guy by the name of Arnold <laughs> running around Tidewater, Virginia. And he's forming this thing called an American Legion and he's going to you know, win back America. Well, they said, mm, maybe we should move these guys from Charlottesville. And it was probably a good idea. I mean, he does burn Richmond. So he gets pretty close. Um, so they ended up trucking those guys, well, marching. They didn't truck them anywhere. Hmm. Marching those guys from Charlottesville to Fort Frederick. And Wait, I just lost track of the timeline. Has, has, has old Benny switched sides at that point? Yeah, Benny, so that's when he's, Benny switched sides. So I did, it just flew over my head Like when you said take back America. I was no, like, that's what the American Legion was. They were loyalists. Yeah. So... I guess I'll ask this in the follow-up, but I'm going to ask it now. Don't answer it. But, like, what's the connection between him and the American Legion as I as we know it now? So, none, right? But it's just my brain is just attached to that. So that's something right. I want to clarify in the next episode. Right. Um, so they send these prisoners. Now, some of them are German. Most of them are British. But we also know that they don't... Well, I shouldn't say... they. The prisoners in Charlottesville are British and German. They don't typically remove the Germans. Hmm. The Germans tend to stay. And then when they did move them, they moved them to Winchester. And then they kept them there. Because one, Maryland's like, how am I going to provide for all these people? And two, the Germans aren't going anywhere. Right. They're theoretically mercenaries and they've... Life was hard. <laughs> yeah. They're getting sold from country to country to go fight wars. It's like, oh, I could just stay here. Yeah, they themselves are not mercs, but the the princes that they are under, they're, you could argue. Yeah, they're being treated that way Correct. by their leadership. Yeah. Correct. So they send a bunch of these British prisoners to, to Fort Frederick, and it's getting crowded. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if they don't release prisoners, which I don't ever see records of releases from the time that the fort is initially open... To the time that the war ends, I mean, we are talking thousands of British prisoners that are housed in and around Fort Frederick. Again, maybe someone more scholar than me that could tell me that I'm completely full of it, but I've never seen a record that says they're not there. Hmm. So I've got to assume, based on the lack of that evidence, that they are there. So you have militia guarding them. We also have a company of Maryland state troops that are raised um, under Captain uh, Reed, 
who are there guarding true uh, guarding the prisoners, and that seems to be what their job is. They were raised literally to guard prisoners. Um, 1781, we jump a little bit ahead in the timeline, not much, but we've got these people languishing. Oh, in 1780, there is an, an attempt by the prisoners to escape, a mass escape attempt, Should because be the, the well dried up, they had no food, so apparently they try to force the gate, and as Colonel Rawlings succinctly wrote, they were put down. <laughs> wow. Or, the, or the, the, the attempt was put down. The end. Handled that. Yeah. Don't hmm. ask questions. So exactly how, I don't know, but I tend to think that guards were sent in the fort and forced them back at bayonet point, and there may have been casualties, but, you know, we don't know. But it's just, it's just so blunt. It was put down. Was there ever a burial ground um, associated with the fort? So, yes. Yes, we know there was a cemetery. Um, unfortunately, we've lost it. Okay. So there's still English out there, probably. There are Maryland troops buried there. They're probably um, from the French and Indian War. There are probably North Carolina troops buried there from the French and Indian War. We know the last fort commander during the French and Indian War, um, Lieutenant John Riley, is buried in that cemetery. That's one of the reasons we know it exists, because a guy wrote about it in the, in the diary. He said that the funeral procession went by our door in the village, and they buried him. They fired three volleys over him, and all that stuff. So we know there's a cemetery um, on property. We have not been able to locate it, nor the village. There was a village that sprung up during the French and Indian War that we have not been able to locate. Uh, last summer, there was an attempt um, by archaeologists to, to locate it in a, in, in a big swath of area we thought it could be in, and they turned up nothing. So I think we're narrowing it down. But again, we don't know. There's some potential that it may actually be in our picnic area. Hmm. <laughs> underneath the playground and the picnic area, yeah. Uh, but but we just don't know. And what's sad is is that apparently the cemetery was still known in the 20th century. Really? You're going to find that one then. If it was known that recent to so. us, like, I just, it, it's, it, I just, that's the kind of thing I feel in my bones. Like, you're going to find that one. If it was known that recent in time. Yeah, 1920s, I think, there's a reference to it that the, the ranger or whatever at the park literally roped it off like staked off where it was and but no one so there's probably somewhere. still physical evidence on the surface of that somewhere it's it's probably hard to find but or just under matt yeah. you want to help you want to absolutely go yeah matt so, and i are going to find it don't worry history things podcast is on the case there you go. well <laughs> like i said maryland historic trust came out last year and amateurs and, and did some <laughs> just kidding <laughs> did some test holes um in a, like a big area and then they're supposed to come back at some point and and move to another location uh, as well. But again, it's it, it's hard for archaeologists to find something. Sadly, if they don't know where they're looking, sure. That's they, why historians are important. They can't they can't use GPR or radio spectrometry or anything like that unless they have an area like here's where we think it is, and then they can go looking. If they're just flying blind, it makes it tough. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what happened this time. We said, well, we think it was probably in this area based on these features. And they went through and every so often dug a test pit and mm -hmm. nothing, nothing, nothing. I think they said they found one brick fragment and wow. it was like one little brick fragment, I think one modern nail or something. Um, so, yeah, we have to be able to, to try to narrow it down. And unfortunately, the only location that we've got is from a an unsighted source in a history book that says it was east of the fort 
Oh, okay. That's... Is it is it magnetic east, or is it historical east? And that's a big area. Yeah. Um, and we've we've done visual looks. You know, like in the winter time, it's a good time when all the leaves are off the trees, and Absolutely. and we've looked at. at but it's also land. not because when they drop the leaves, it raises the ground up. And sure. It could be like when I say like there's probably surface physical evidence, maybe like it could cover that. And yeah. what are you going to sift through the leaves of a forest? Have fun. Yeah, but someday we're hoping to find it. Oh, you're going to find the cemetery. I'm um, confident. And if we that. find the cemetery, then we'll be able to probably track down the village because literally the guy who says where he is and sees the, the funeral is in the last house furthest from the fort in the village. Hmm. So you find if you find the village, you find the cemetery. If you find the cemetery, you find the village. Uh, I'm so excited for that day when it comes for you, man. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, and 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 it, and it, and it may. And and again, it will. if if we could find. You know, there are getting to be so many more documents available online and through, like, newspapers and stuff like that. So we're, we're piecing little things together. And a lot of it's come from that, that, like, our idea that maybe in the picnic area comes from a couple of references to some features in that area. That it's like, well, that could be tied in to, to that. Well, and, I'll, and I'll explain it to you why. So there's a reference to that area being known, being known as Kitty Long Hollow, and then there being a spring called Kitty Long Spring. Well, the only hollow in modern park is our picnic area. Right. And there are actually two springs in that area. Hmm. In the village, the house that the James Kinney, the diarist, was in was Samuel Long's house. Samuel Long, and I cannot remember now if it was wife, mother, or daughter, but had a relative named Kitty. You're already on it. This is... Right, and, and that's... but The pieces are coming the together. The pieces yeah. are coming together. So, and that's why we're like, well... And, oh, I know, it was... That area was called Kitty Long Hollow by um, people who lived in the at the Fort property. And they said, that's Kitty Long Hollow. And it's like, well, Kitty Long... Because I was like, Long, that's the name of this guy. And, yeah, I mean, but... But the rabbit holes aren't very deep in some cases, you know, Yet. using because having to use things like Ancestry.com or whatever. Sure, sure. You go as far as that person can give, you know, that tree might give you if you can't find the other documents or whatever. So, yeah, so we, we're hopeful. It's not it's kind of fallen off the radar a little bit right now, but um, it's it's been on there recently. So we're, how do we get to so with the war winding down in the early 1780s where we have this thousands of prisoners rotating through. Do some of the troops, the British troops from Yorktown, make it all the way up there as yeah. prisoners? I think I remember you telling me that at one time. So so famous battles like Saratoga, but also Yorktown. Absolutely. So Yorktown, they send prisoners. Um, George Washington actually or writes the order of, of who's to go there. Now, this is where... I was at this fort once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's It wasn't as cool as my fort in Virginia, but it will do. <laughs> I, I do love... Somebody asked me the other day if anybody famous from the Revolution was, was at the fort, and I said... George Washington. Well, I'm, during the Revolution. Oh, and uh, I said, uh, not, uh, I not particularly, unless you count Colonel Rawlings, who's... who's regionally famous so to speak you know a yeah. minor a minor character but the fact that that in the writings and the documents all of these people are writing about fort frederick at some point washington and and people like the the british generals and um you know the secretaries of war and 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 the different people in the in the uh, in the congress like they they're referencing it yeah they might not be there but but it's cool to go whoa the place is known yeah the place right. is known it's a known commodity and 
sometimes they're complaining about where it's located and stuff. I was like, oh, we're going to send people there. Um, so 1781, um, October, I guess early November after the surrender, Washington orders um, a number of units to Fort Frederick, British and German. The German ones, though, do not go to Fort Frederick. They end up going to Frederick, Maryland, yep. Yep. to the Hessian barracks. And there have been, there's been prisoners there before. Um, and I think that's one of the big issues with our story. We are Fort Frederick. There were British prisoners, German prisoners, and some British prisoners in the Hessian barracks, today known as, in Frederick, Maryland. Some of the German writers called it Fort Frederick. Frederick. Yeah. Um, and so we've got this long-running story that Fort Frederick had German prisoners. We have not found any documentation to support that, nor any archaeology to support German prisoners being at the fort. Oh, so I was mistaken then. When I, I have that. I have one prison guard that says he guarded German prisoners at Fort Frederick, and he is he's clearly at Fort Frederick because I'm pretty sure he says it's on the Potomac or mm. near Hagerstown or something like that. And um, you know, but we got lots of family traditions out there saying, "Hey, my family guarded Hessian prisoners." I'm like, please show me the documentation, and, and I always feel like it's a challenge. It's not. It's like I want to see it. I want I want this to be true. I think this would be cool, but at this point, it's not. I mean, most of the guys who are guarding prisoners there call them British or just call them prisoners, and usually they make the distinction between German and British prisoners. Yeah. The only other potential is that there, there was one unit that may have, I think it's the 37th foot maybe, that was captured at Saratoga that may have come to Fort Frederick. We don't know for sure if they were there. And they had one company that were German speakers. Oh, okay. That potentially could be it. They, The guys knew they were guys speaking German. I heard the guys speaking freaky Deutsch. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. But, so, but definitely British prisoners. So when the prisoners from Yorktown arrived, this is one of the cool, cool things to me. Um, the... Commander Rawlings writes a letter to the governor, and he says, so we just got, uh, it was, it's 1,100 is the total, So, I'm, but I'm not going to give the totals, but the largest number, he says, are soldiers. And then he says, we have X number women, X number of kids, and X number of sailors. And it totals like almost 1,100, and he says, the fort is pretty full. <laughs> it sounds pretty full. <laughs> we know the fort is so full that they're building huts on the parade field. They're living in the three barracks and married troops who have their wives with them are allowed to build huts outside of the fort because they're not going anywhere. They've got their wives and kids. And that's from a, 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 um, a corporal Fox. He was with the 47th foot who spends a short, I mean, he does travel through. I don't know. He's only there for a few weeks and moves on. I'm not so, so we may have guys moving in and out, but, like I'm said, getting this like Revolutionary War Andersonville vibe. Yes. Like where there's just like shanty shacks made out of whatever. Correct. Well, that's crazy. Yes. And and although it's hard to see today in the 70s, they did some infrared images of the fort. And I think that the film sadly is starting to deteriorate because it's hard to see now. You used to be able to see the hut pits pits on the in, wow. the, uh, in the parade field. Wow. Also, if and this is a tradition that we can't verify but if you look at the fort today you can see at least 11 some inside some outside these sort of pit marks big pit marks at the base of the wall we believe that's where huts were built up against the wall and that was the fireplace back and it worked burned away the 
you know, broke down the stone and those, those pits are from, and they're all over the fort. And like I said, there's some outside as well. That's awesome. So it is, it is full. It is very full. And it's so bad that they may have, or they considered pulling all the prisoners out of there. The, the, I think it's Abraham Skinner, the, the main prison, um, Oh my deputy com- commissioner or whatever he was, I can't remember the title exactly, comes to the fort and says, the fort's terrible. It's not inhabitable. Um, but they seem to still stay there. There's some indication they may have ended up moving them all to Frederick or to, to Lancaster later. But, but I tend to think that based on what we know, is that 1782, 83, they're still there hmm. before they're shipped, you know, marched to New York and sent home. But yeah, no matter how long the fort is in operation after 82, and no matter how many people are actually there at one time, is it the grand total of 5,000 or whatever that I've come up with based on the numbers that I've seen? Even even 1,000, 2,000 people in that fort is too much. The barracks, the enlisted barracks were built for 100 men each. Well, that's what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I think you threw out the number like 300 at one point, but that included men outside in the fort and like also that were like rotating out on patrols. Correct. And- the fort, that was right. The, the fort was, in Sharp's mind, was meant to be for 300 men, 200 in the fort, and 100 out always patrolling. Yeah. Hmm. And then the officer's quarters, you know, now mind you empty out the rooms, It's it, you could put a lot of people in it, but it was only built to accommodate about eight officers and then the storehouse. Now, that building was about 90 feet wide and about the same width as the barracks, so you could probably put 100 guys in there and you could put more. I mean, the governor also says that the fort could double its strength in an emergency, so I'm sure he's thinking about moving tables and let guys sleep on the floor. So even then, the barracks holds 400 men. Yeah. So you put 1,000 people in there. Hmm. The fire marshal is like, what are you doing? Yeah. And, and also, too, if you look at the records, and again, Revolutionary War records aren't always good. They're not complete. I've only found three references to food the entire war at Fort Frederick. Oof. That's something that, I, that sticks out to me when I made the Andersonville references. One of the first things that you taught me about this fort when I discovered that it or rather when you made it known to me that there was British prisoners of war held here and things like that you described the scene as like look this wasn't just a crappy place for the British soldiers and and camp followers and 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 various other prisoners but like the supply chain issues they were having also affected the guards themselves Correct. And, and and so when you say the reference, like three references to food, like I remember you basically telling me like the mentality was like these people would be asking for food and things like that. And the soldiers that were guarding them were like, what makes you think you're going to get food when we can't get it ourselves? Exactly. Like, I'm eating before you, dude. Right. It's, it's not probably a pleasant station for the guards. And I think that's, you know, then that was another <laughs> issue with using the militia. Because militia guys are like, I'll just go home. Yeah. <laughs> right. I got food at my house. And that's probably one of the reasons they enlisted those state troops. And again, I don't know how many they actually got. I'd like to say, you know, you would think it was a company, 25 to 100 guys. You know, American companies probably more like 25. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's it's not a good place for the guards. Um, it's definitely not a good place for the prisoners. And and imagine too, you know, we think of war as men historically, but there are women and children in this fort. So imagine the logistical issues of having not only men, but having to deal with, for, for the women, having to deal with their own 
sanitation and hygiene and health and children and dealing with that, keeping them fed and healthy and alive. And then there's sailors there. And you know what <laughs> sailors are like. Oh, yeah. Oh, but I, I, I want to do want to, sorry, because I know you're a big pirate guy. Yes, lay it on me. So they called them sailors in this reference, and they are sailors. But they're actually... Privateers. Privateers. Yes, let's go. Sanctioned pirates, baby. Yep. Um, Absolutely. Sanctioned pirates. They're, um, and the only officer that I know being, that for sure, at, kept at the fort was Cap, Captain Matthew Mangan. And Captain Matthew Mangan ran a ship on the Chesapeake Bay, and he was a terror. He yeah. burned houses and terrorized mm. people and did all those things that a pirate of... of, of Good caliber, of our, good quality. Well, of, of our conscience. You know, the pirate... Yeah. You know, the pirates that we think of, he, it's what he did. And it's kind of interesting because I have got a couple guard references. One says we, I guarded sea robbers at Fort ah, Frederick, and mm-hmm. one that says I guarded pirates. He said, you best start believing in ghost stories. Now, these privateers are typically Americans. Mangan is from New York. Now, I don't know if he's first generation or whatever, but, but these are this is sort of the Civil War aspect of the Revolution. You know, you've got these guys who could be American by birth being acting as privateers for the crown. And then they're kept at Fort Frederick. Yeah. There's some kept at Fort Frederick. There's so there's no honor among thieves. Who's paying me the most? Yeah. There we go. Or they just really like the King. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't, you know, like, I don't know Mangan's story. Before I don't think the, the war. pirates, the pirates were fond of the English monarchy. Just, you know. Yeah. And, but again, what were his, we don't, I don't know what his, his motivation was. Was it literally, a pirate's life for me, plunder and all that stuff, or was it? I want to mess with these stupid patriot types, rebels. They all of the above, maybe. Yeah, it could be. Who knows? I don't know. I, but but he is he is mentioned in like their letter saying order saying watch him. So when I joked about coming to see you dressed as a pirate, I could find a, a more late 18th century version of the pirate sort of thing that I do, and I could actually be a potential POW at your four. Yes. Yeah, please. That's all you need to say. You're still going to have to shave the beard. No. I'm uh, a pirate. I don't know <laughs> about the beard, but but neither here nor there. So we do, when we do a, our program, we do usually do around the 4th of July a little thing about the revolution. And usually when I have enough staff, I usually have, we have one person at least that will dress up and say that they're, you know, portraying a sailor or a privateer. You know, they might wear slops or civilian attire and just like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a privateer and explain that, that part of the story. I'm your guy. Let's do it. That sounds good. You're on. I'm not shaving my beard. I don't care. This guy. <laughs> Only just, because you're a pirate. He says that out of just envy, just so you know that. Matt, a little bit. Matt's like, he's got the cool Robert Gould Shaw thing going on. Absolutely. But like he does want yeah. a Caleb Brewster like I have. Sure. I'm not physically capable of capable of doing no, that though he's just not a beard guy like me i would be curious how the british soldiers got along with the privateers probably not i would agree i would think that 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 i would tend to agree with that i mean but that would be an interesting too bad more people didn't write about their experience at the fort because that would be a cool a cool thing to find out that is such an interesting before we sort of you know jump ahead because um we want to get into the civil war stuff a little bit before we wind down it just kind of blows my mind the amount of things people write down throughout history in random places how little there is actually written about like there's so much written about fort frederick as far as like references you know people being ordered here and like passing through here and pointing it out on a map and blah 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 but like like first-hand accounts of like what's going down like it's just 
I don't think it didn't exist. It's just crazy that so much of it has been lost to time. I'm just wondering what the literacy rates would have been with the basic enlisted men or seafarers in that case. But even officers, like, I know you were saying, like, Revolutionary War era sort of like paperwork records are, you know, can be skeptical or what's the word I'm looking for? Sketchy. Sketchy um, or incomplete or missing. But, like, not one? So, so... First of the records, the problem in a lot of cases, even with our, our French and Indian War records, we'll have one side of the conversation. Mm. We'll have a letter or an order, Good point. but we don't have the reply. Or it's the reply to the original letter, and you're like, well, what was he asking? What did they say? Rev War, we have, of course, letters from Colonel Rawlings, orders and different things and different people at that, that level. We have some, there's some references in, in, in British accounts. The only quote-unquote diarist that we know of that was at Fort Frederick is this, this Corporal Fox. And he is there such a short time. He literally writes two or three entries. And that's why we know about the, 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 the shacks for the, the married soldiers. Um, so he's it. And then, like I said, all the other records are somewhat incomplete. I mean, oh, I know somebody who was writing letters about Fort Frederick Thomas Jefferson when he was governor of Virginia because he was trying to get rid of those prisoners. <laughs> but, you know, and, and to me, that's still cool reading these, these letters from these guys. It's like, wow, Thomas Jefferson is talking about my fort. That's awesome. <laughs> that is Un- awesome. Unrelated, but like semi-related when you're talking about like, you know, initial letter or having the reply. I think that's one of the things that fascinates me so much about the Lee and Grant correspondence ahead of Appomattox surrender is sure. like, as I read them, like, it's cool because you can oftentimes, like, I just came across today referencing our Q2 episode, I guess a letter that Queen Victoria wrote, a condolence letter to Mary Todd. And it's a fantastic insight into, like, two people sharing a similar grief, obviously different circumstances, but missing their better halves. And as I finished reading it, I was like, did Mary reply? Like, what did she say? I wanted to know that. And I'm sure that is probably something that could be found, but, like, my brain immediately went there. It was like, what's the other part of this? And and, and I like that about the Lee and Grant correspondence because you get, you know, basically Grant's like, it's time to give it up. And Lee's like, I don't know what you mean there, old boy. And like, there's <laughs> some like good back and forth. But you right. get to see both halves of this conversation bringing us to this moment at Appomattox. And, and it's, I got to imagine, like you're describing, it probably is like super frustrating when you're sitting there holding like a letter from Rawlings, but you don't know like what was said to him or prompted his whatever. And, yeah. It's, it's like trying to fish and like you just can't connect the bait to the hook. You're like, ah, it's all here. <laughs> I have the worm. Like, ah. Fort Frederick is, is frustrating in that respect. Our French and Indian War story is incomplete. Our Rev War story is incomplete. I mean, we know, we don't know what the fort actually looked like. I mean, we know what the fort looked like because it's still there. But I mean, like the buildings and stuff exactly. But we know that the governor, the Governor Sharp, sent out at least five copies of the plans. Hmm. But we've never been able to locate him. And then when there was the build-up to the Forbes campaign, he sends, I think it's he sends it to St. Clair. Somebody in there draws a map of Fort Frederick and its environs. And, and they discuss that where the well, they mention that their wells and their, their, their magazines and flats, which are storehouses, outside of the fort. And it's like, where is this? Hmm. If I, because honestly, I would rather have that document than the plans. Like if I can only have one, because this would show me in 1758 what it all looked like. 
at least generally, and I would know where maybe where the village is and where all the buildings were, but I, none of that's been located. Or I've seen letters from George Washington in the Rev War that references Fort Frederick, but I don't know why. Like, you know, like somebody's written and it's like, oh, it's like, what, what is this? What is this little, little gym? And it's, that's been, that's a big thing. I mean, Rev War in some ways is, is very well documented, but there's so many holes because you know they got food more than three times. Of course. Um, you know, there's so, you know that there's more to the story, but some of those records are lost, incomplete. Never written. Never written, yeah. One question before we, we time travel a little yeah. bit further ahead into the next war is, have you guys, you as a personal historian, you as a state ranger historian, or just anybody involved in in the attempted and, and ongoing preservation and memorialization of Fort Frederick? Have you guys ever looked in the British records? Yes. I mean, not me. Well, I mean, I've looked at some stuff that digitally because I've not been to England. No, to of do course. That. But I mean, I just imagine um, maybe there's, maybe there's the copies. The state's no. not going to pay for you to go to yeah. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> in the 70s when they were trying to rebuild. Because re- the plan was in, in the 70s was to completely restore the entire fort with right. bicentennial money. But they did send letters and, and, and corresponded with, with archives in England. You know, back, it's weird reading those letters. as like, no, we don't have anything. Um, but They're totally lying. They're just so bitter yeah, but, about but the war Yeah, but seeing the correspondent back, correspondence back and forth is kind of interesting. And then in the 90s, when they were trying to, they wanted to rebuild the, the, the governor's house, the officer's quarters, our friends of group paid for a researcher in England to, to go through archives and came up with nothing. And of course, we have no idea if they you know, truly came up yeah. with nothing. Yeah. Um, so that's happened. I know that in the 30s, when they, when the Civilian Conservation Corps was there, the National Park Service did some inquiries at different places. I don't know if they went to contacted England, but I know that they were at least across the country had had had, had referenced the archaeologist that was involved with the project was like. Yeah, we've talked to all these different, or sent letters to all these different places. So people have tried. Um, and, and again, there's little things that keep, little threads that keep coming out. I figure that our plans and stuff are some DAR hall somewhere that no one knows about. Or it could be in an un, unfiled file in the state archives. I, I want to, like, this. my curious brain is just totally fascinated by the, what records lie, not just hidden in, like, state archives or DAR archives, but, like, you know, like, what is in the British archives about this? Because a few years ago I was watching a documentary about the Battle of the Somme, and they, like, it was like a mind-blowing thing. This guy was like, we haven't actually looked at the German records about this. And I was like, well, that's kind of dumb. They're pretty accessible. But in that research they found out that, like, two Irish, you know, bitter Irish troops had been captured and, like, had low-key betrayed that the attack was coming. Now... What that intelligence did for the Germans is highly debatable, but like it was interesting to see that there was this pre-July first reference to like the Germans were like, yeah, we know it's coming, hmm. like they knew it, and I like I was like, wow, like, and I think that was discovered in like the, in the last twenty years, and I want to say more more recent, like I think twenty sixteen, but I just was fascinated by like that's a that's sitting in the in somebody else's records. And like, you're talking about all these copies and like governor sharp had been asking for money and like the legislature here is still a colonial legislature. So they're probably still communicating further over mm-hmm. back to the crown. So like, I wonder how much of the records here exist over there. 
Some of it, I'm sure, does. I know that with the, you know, the, the, the Sharps correspondence in the Maryland archives, he has, you know, the letters, most of the letters back and forth from England. Like, you know, it's, it's funny because you, you'll read something three times and think it's three different things, and you realize, oh, wait, he's written the same thing to three different people slightly differently. Yeah. <laughs> All right, personal appeal to future King of England, Prince William. Uh, when you become the king, can you just, you know, holler at your boys over here and send us what you got relating to Fort Frederick? <laughs> Appreciate you. Thank you, sir. All right, um, we're going to jump ahead to 1861. Um, but I want you not just to like act like nothing happened between the end of the revolution and now. So in three minutes or less, how do we go from the end of the war, uh, treaty, uh, Paris is signed. We are the American nation that we live in now. And the, pr- all right, before we go right in that, what happens to all the prisoners? Like when it's decided that like this, this is no longer going to be used. We just say, go home. They are marched to New York because New York is the last place to sort of, surrender in a way i mean it, the surrenders you know the pieces happen but they're still there in new york city there's some new york city and they get on boats and they're sent back to england um do we just stand there with double middle fingers as they sail away like there's a, what estimated one hundred and twenty thousand people flee the former colonies correct yes there's a massive massive exit of of americans as well and there's there's a fair number of british soldiers who stay here and there's a bigger number of Germans, <laughs> Germans that stay here. <laughs> yeah. um, but most of them go back to England. Um, and they basically, I actually think we might even have footed the bill for them to go. I so when are so. they marched out of Fort Frederick? I don't have an official date. Um, Give us a window. I would say it's, it's sometime in, in late 1782, early 1783. Uh, again. You think, so you think they're marched out before the treaty is signed? Like the official war ending treaty? Possibly, but just because I know that the conditions there are supposedly so bad and the records of them being there become less and less, they may have been marched out earlier to Frederick and to Lancaster and stuff. But again, I I can't say exactly when they left, um, but I do know that at some point they do start sending people to different locations. So what happens to the fort then once the prisoners are out? Um... You know, obviously, we're talking the 1780s and the Civil War in the frame of the 143 wars that we kind of frame this program in. So, like, what happened sort of in the in the time between the the conflicts? You wanted three minutes. I can do it in 30 seconds. So, this I mean, great. yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I, <laughs> no. I want to... Well, but we're running out of time, and I want to make sure that we get the Civil War stuff without being rushed. And that's the thing. So, nothing. The state sells the property in about 1791. It becomes farmland. And it goes through a couple different owners up until just before the Civil War. So it's just a big-ass stone fort sitting there, and people are just mowing the grass and planting well, stuff around it? Well, they start to do that five-finger discount again with it. I'm Yes. Yeah, the five-finger discount definitely takes place as well. Um, a guy by the name of John Stone owns it into the late, and probably the first, up until about 1850, I guess. Um but yeah, nothing really happens besides people start taking stuff and there's agricultural going on, agricultural pursuits. 1850 is a big year. Um, a guy by the name of Nathan Williams starts living on the property. Nathan Williams is a freedman of color. Yes. Yep. Um, Nathan Williams had been born enslaved in Virginia. His father purchased him and his family out of slavery in the 1820s. His father then, which I think is interesting makes nathan work for him as an indentured servant to pay off the money that he paid for him to 
his freedom. So he lived with his dad until he was like 20-something. Hmm. Um, his father ends up buying what's known as Prather's Neck on the Sino Canal. Um, big Sam Williams, apparently he really was, is like 6'3", and, you know, I hate to say it, but stereotypically I think when I keep thinking of Big Sam, I think John Henry. Yeah. You know, you know yeah. the myth- mythological John that. Henry. I'd Are s- you sure he's 6'3"? Because if Matt finds out you're wrong, he's going to tell you. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> he's a big guy. <laughs> Um, so, so his father owns property nearby at Prather's Neck, which is just a few miles down the road from Fort Frederick. 1850, Nathan ends up on the property. Um, I think it's 1847. He purchases wife's freedom. Um, Amy, actually her name's Annie, but for some reason they ever called her Amy. I don't, I don't know why. Tombstone says Annie, but she was known as Amy. I've never asked the family that one, and I need to. I, I know I'm still in touch with some of the relatives of the family. Nice. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, which is really cool. So so he gets the property, 1850. He's there renting, I think, at this point. 1860, he buys the fort and about 100 acres. $5,000 if you read one court document, 7000 if you read another court document. Hmm. Um, it's a lot of money in yes. 1850-ish so, money. Yeah. So two things. He has a mortgage. Which people always ask, how'd he pay for it? He had a mortgage. So he's paying it off. And he's paying it off. And he had a cosigner. Ah. And in his case, it's a guy who appears to be a local, somewhat wealthy white man um, who is the cosigner on his on his loan, on his mortgage. Sure. Um, According to his family, though, he pays it off in seven years. I mean, got to be good ground. Agricultural. John, it, and it, John Buford would be like, this is good, this good ground. ground. And, and it, is, <laughs> it is referenced as a, as a very prosperous farm and one of the best in the county. Hmm. So he's there, 1860. 1861. Civil War breaks out. Here is a family, because he has eight children. I don't know if he has all eight by 1860, but he's going to have eight children. But he's got some children at the time. He actually owns, owns a slave. And I should, I should rephrase that. Is he, he purchases the papers of a young man, but the plan is to manumit him when he's 21. Okay. When, do you know when he purchases the individual? 57, I believe. I mean, sorry, the, I meant to ask you, do we know how old the person was when he was purchased? 15, I believe. And the reason that he, he does this is he needs help on the farm because his kids are too young at the outbreak of the war. So he's got a wife dealing with some very young children, baby to a couple years old. He needs help on the farm. So he gets. So I'm just guy. trying to make sense of this. I'm not trying to make light of it. So if you're listening out there and you think I'm making light of this, I apologize. I'm just trying to make sense of this. So when he's purchasing this man and he's... I don't like to speculate intent, but like, is he purchasing this guy with the like, look, I'm not going to treat you like a bastard. You're basically going to work here and like help me. And like when you're 21, you can go your own way kind of thing. Or, yeah. I, like, is there like a preset? Like he's told you're going to go free. Yes. Or? Yeah. It's in the, it's in the documents in the, in the, in the papers. So he essentially buys an enslaved individual and like turns him into more of an indentured. Correct. Servant. He, I think he does exactly what his dad did to him. Okay. His dad purchases him and says, Hey buddy, you got to help. That's well, the example he's worked with. You got to pay your sure. way. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm just trying no. to understand the dynamic. So That's he all. is, he is, is oddly, you know, technically Nathan Williams is a slaveholder. He may, it's, it's, I've still struggled with trying to figure out exactly if he purchased his wife's freedom from 
her owner. I hate to say that nobody owns anybody. I mean, um, I mean, it's dude. Uh, what do we agree? If you're talking about history and you're not uncomfortable ever, you're not doing it right. And two, like this right. is the act. This is the time. Right. And so I don't know if he purchases her freedom outright from the neighbor because she was on the neighboring farm, or if he purchases her slave papers, similar to how he was in this other Correct. young man. So he's, in, in a way, he's an odd duck, but if you look at what he's trying to do, he's working within the confines of the system that he's been given in order to eventually manumit, potentially manumit some people. Certainly. Yeah. So Nathan Williams is there, war breaks out, got the family, got, oddly enough, the boy's name is Nathan Carl. I, hmm. we don't, I don't know if he took, the, took Nathan's name because, I don't know. War breaks out. Where Nathan Williams' house is is literally a half a mile from the Potomac River, actually half a mile from the shore of what's now Confederate Virginia. Right. On the border of Berkeley and Morgan counties across the river. You can't get much more on the border than Nathan Williams' farm. <laughs> Civil War, another hot take. <laughs> it's about slavery. Yeah. No, yep. we, we established that day one. We agree. <laughs> um. Yeah, there's some other stuff, but that's the big one. Yeah, that's, no slavery, no war. Sorry. Um, exactly. So here you have a freed man living on a farm on the border of the war. Of course, the war starts, and as I call it, it's almost like in that area of, of Maryland, it's almost like the phony war. Yes, Matt loves this term. It's almost a phony war. I called it play war at one time. Sure. Because like there's a couple of instances locally of like local militia groups like stealing the ferry boat. You know, like going <laughs> yeah, over right. the other side and stealing the Let's ferry go boat. Screw with the other side. Yeah. 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 So there's all this little tit for tat. And of course, first Manassas happens in July. Um, the big kind of kerfuffle in the area and, and then and, Ball's Bluff. And Ball's Bluff. And everything sort of starts settling down in northern into northern Virginia along the Potomac. Well, the initial union strategy is we protect the entire length of the freaking river so they have put they will eventually put small groups of troops at every ferry crossing every ford along the canal so every canal lock every bridge all the way along there and technically they're protecting the bno railroad from the north bank of the potomac which of course right. the bno is in confederate virginia at the time at least in this this section yeah so in the fall winter of 1861, they start sending troops out towards Fort Frederick. There's a few good little tidbits that happen. Um, there's a skirmish on park property cro across from the mouth of the uh, of Back Creek, where the Union First Virginia Infantry. And let me think. December. Matt, do you know the date? thought it was Christmas. No, not this time. This okay. is before Christmas. This is before the Christmas skirmish? Yeah. Let me check. Because the Christmas skirmish is 1st Maryland. I think that's Potomac Home Brigade or 1st Maryland. 1st Maryland. Outright. It's 1st Maryland outright because they've got a bunch of uh, Virginia uh, guys who've come over. Is some of the 7th Maryland there too? Um, Maybe at one point. Yeah, hold but. on. Let me find it here. I've got it. i got to make sure I get the right Real time, time yeah. fact check. So December 6th. December 6, 1861, Company D of the 1st Virginia Infantry, USA, was involved in the skirmish at Back Creek. Um, and the Federals, the Union troops, were on the opposite um, river, opposite the mouth, which is actually on 
undeveloped park property. Um, and they were fired on by Confederate infantry. Nobody was hurt, at least on the Union side. I think that the Confederates were potentially trying to disrupt the bridge. There's a there's a B&O Railroad bridge there. Um, the Union troops of this first Virginia is kind of interesting because I have just forgotten his first name. Uh, it was Lincoln's bodyguard, Lamon. Come on. Um, Ward Hill Lamon. Ward Hill. Ward Hill yep. That's it. Yep. I was going to say James Ward, and I was like, that's no, not right. Ward, Ward Hill, Hill. Lamon. It's, it's his unit. The first Virginia is this sort of understrength loyal West Virginian Maryland unit. Um, they will eventually become the third Maryland U S infantry. Woo. That's right. Uh, that's for shout out for Matt there. Cause <laughs> it's, it's, it's his, that's his group. Um, so they end up doing that. So there's this little skirmish and that's, that's reported. And of course, Lamon is pretty famous dude. Even at this point, he's been Lincoln's bodyguard he's or he's going to be, and he's a big dude. <laughs> yeah. So this little skirmish happens again, not much there, but that's the first thing in December. December is a busy month at Fort Frederick. So I think it's the 18th. We just name-dropped him, and I just realized we didn't really talk about him at all in the whole Lincoln assassination. His absence is a huge thing that people like to talk about. Right. He he lives with that guilt the rest of his life. Right. So we'll we'll probably revisit that at some point. Warner Lehman's story in and of itself is fascinating. So then the local commander on the 16th, who I believe is uh, Colonel Leonard, I think he's 13th Massachusetts, maybe, is his regiment. He's kind of got troops throughout the area he sends two cannon to fort frederick and this incident is kind of cool because if you look at the historical record at, at period newspapers this was headline news yes mm-hmm. of course there's not a whole lot going on in the war but this is headline news so colonel hammond uh, colonel leonard sends up two cannons to fort frederick uh, we believe they're from the first pennsylvania uh, light artillery battery f and quote from the newspaper source, let's see, uh, the Baltimore American and Commercial Advertiser from December 17th, 1861, quote, in order to give the force, the Confederates, uh, returning by railroad a raking, three shots were fired, hitting the engine. The train, however, had no Confederate troops on board, but those in charge of the train betook themselves to a secure place in hot haste. It's been ascertained that the train was bound for Paxton Cut for railroad iron. And this this is reported in several papers, like picked up by, I don't know if the Associated Press was a thing yet, but kind of that thing, the news wires, mm. a news service is picked yeah. up. And and I found variations of the story, I think as far away as Cincinnati. Nice. So this is big news. So this cannon, literally these two cannons are shooting at a train, hit it in the in the in the in the steam drive and basically blow it up. Not a big explosion like fire, but big steam release, and the guys on the train are like, yeah, we're getting the heck out of Dodge. The guys, hmm. the gunner's like, gotcha. Gotcha, yeah. <laughs> now, also, also during this time, Stonewall Jackson is at a little place called Dam Number 5, yep. uh, trying to disrupt the uh, Sino Canal. So again, activity is, is up in the area. He's partially successful in damaging Canal, but it, it, was, it was a disaster. Uh, and I'm a Stonewall guy, but the Dam Number 5 trip was worthless. <laughs> Just caused more death for them. So because Jackson comes to dam number five and he's threatening, they think, to cross, because I think he even tries to build a pontoon bridge he does. at Williamsport yeah. or near Williamsport and uh, at least as a fiant to draw troops away from what he's really doing. So on the 18th, 
Company H of the 1st Maryland Infantry U.S. Yeah, there are Marylanders on both sides. There we go. The ultimate border um, fence centers. There we go. Are sent to, quote, Old Fort Frederick. Um, These troops are at Fort Frederick from the 18th of December until January 7th, 1861, from this company. Now, the other companies of the 1st are stationed along the river at Four Locks, Dam Number 5, Cherry Run, and McCoy's Ferry. So literally every place that there's something 61 to 61 or 62? 61. We're still in the winter, December 61. I thought you said January. Sorry. That's why I was like, wait. We no, they're there. Before so they're there. So December of 61 to January of 7th of 62. 62. Okay, cool. So then, and I don't know why this is such a thing, but on December 25th, 1861, there's a skirmish at Fort Frederick between the men of Company H, the 1st Maryland, and potentially, I believe, Turner Ashby's cavalry, which would be mm-hmm. the 7th Virginia. Mm-hmm. Could be some militia involved, Virginia militia, but but potentially um, Ashby's cavalry. Ashby's cavalry is probably trying to tear up the railroad tracks opposite of Fort Frederick. The Union troops are probably stationed near the riverbank, and they exchange fire back and forth. For years, that's kind of we just knew there was a skirmish. That was it. Oops, sorry. Didn't they? Didn't they? Aren't there confirmed Confederate casualties in this skirmish? Don't they take one or two of them down? Because I think you told me that at once, and my question was like, why didn't they go get them and see who they were? That's a great question. And I think part of it just got to do with is it worth. Getting going over the there. River? No. So this skirmish takes place. There's also one at Cherry Run, one also at Dam Number Five. Like, why are why aren't these guys celebrating Christmas? I don't care if you're at war. Go go away. <laughs> hey, do we only do that during the First World War? Okay, we just we only stop war to hang out. Once. I'd have been. I'm, I love Christmas, so I'd have been pretty pissed. I if they'd have made too. me fight a battle that day. True <laughs> or false? Fort Frederick, the surrounding town. I don't know if it's Big Pool or whatever, but the surrounding like civilian population is kind of. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Like, they're a good microcosm of these split loyalties of Maryland. Because isn't there a good section of the town that's like, like when they're referencing that skirmish, they're like, yeah, we got them. But they're meaning like Turner Ashby's guys. And then there's like a bunch being like, what do you mean we? You mean Company H? <laughs> yeah, so a, a local diarist. Um, uh, oh, my God. Uh, what his name just escaped me. I'm going to sh- if it's Jacob Bangalbrecht. No, it's not. No, it's I know, not. I know, I know, I <laughs> know. You know what I mean? Oh, I just forgot his name. But that's okay. The local diarist, he lives in Virginia, and he's the one that writes some of this, this the pro-Confederate stuff. Okay. Um, so he's he's living closer to Hedgesville, about four miles or so away from the fort in Virginia. Out near the woods? Yes, between the woods and Hedgesville. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Johnson's Town area. I got some family in, in the woods in yeah. Hedgesville area. So he's out there. Um, it's going to kill me. I can't remember his name. I've only eh, read, I've only read the book about seven times. Get his name right. We'll talk about it in the next episode. So, so yeah, he writes all the pro-Southern stuff. But we never really had a good account. And, again, it's not a great account. But one day I stumbled on a letter. And this was from a guy by the name of Reverend Samuel Bookman, who... Appears to be part of the local the artillery unit, but he's also apparently either a pastor or a lay speaker because he preaches a sermon on New Year's Day that gets published as a, as a newspaper story. But he talks about the skirmish on the 25th, and this is what he says. Uh, Samuel Book- Bookman wrote, A short time after their arrival, the 1st Maryland, they encountered a body of rebel cavalry on the opposite side of the river. A brisk fire was kept up for some time, which resulted in the killing and wounding of some five or six of the enemy, leaving our men unhurt. Now, again, he's slightly biased because he's a Union artilleryman and he's 
pro union, of course. Right. But he seems to he's a guy, and he's from the local area too. So I would think he is a, a pretty good source. So, um, yeah, you were talking about our men. Here you go. It, it's yes. it's Elijah Manor as the Southern diarist. He writes our men, the Confederates fired at the Yankees yesterday at Cherry Run. And then he says, 30 Confederate cavalry go to Cherry Run. Ashby has 160 troopers in Hedgesville. Um, so we're, that's one of the reasons we think it's Ashby's guys, because he's talking about their movements in the same area at the, yeah, same, yeah, time. At the same time. But yes, our, our, our men. It just sticks <laughs> out. You're like, yeah. oh, you, you wanted to say that, huh? Yeah. So, and then things get quiet for a minute, at least right at Fort Frederick. But January 1st, New Year's Day. Hey, guys. There shouldn't be a war going on. Everybody should be excited. <laughs> it's a new year. Yeah. But no, there's a second skirmish at Fort Frederick. Well, technically a third skirmish now at Fort Frederick, and then fourth if you count the artillery engagement. Right. So, again, we go back to Samuel Bookman. He says, A group of rebels were discovered on the railroad track in the mouth of Paxton's Cut, one mile and a half distant, uh, when a shell from a Union Parrot gun was discharged, which fell on the tracks and exploded, creating quite a panic amongst them and causing them to retrace their steps more rapidly than they advanced. Hmm. And this was also picked up by the new services, as there's there's variations of the story and a little more to it that come from the other places. And this is the one that, um, let me find it. Uh, Detachments of the 13th Massachusetts and 1st Maryland participated in the repulse and rout of the Confederate forces. Our men killed and buried 29 of the enemy, Whoa. and it is supposed many afterwards died of their wounds. Our loss is reported by private sources to have been five wounded and none killed. So, again, and this, I could read some other details, but we don't need them, But because you can actually find some of this online if you look at, like, the Harper's Weeklies and different things. There's several variations of this story out there. So this, again, not a lot going on in the bigger war, at least not in the East, so this was picked up and was big news. 29 Confederates. I mean, if that's true, that's... I mean, that's still a small skirmish. It's not Gettysburg, but... No, but for the time, yeah. that's a huge... And also, where are they buried? Like, are they buried in proximity to the fort? Like, so there's also maybe now Confederate dead on the fort property? No, there would be... On, again, all the con, all this activity is pretty much the Confederates are on the south bank of the Potomac. They oh, so never, we're shooting across we're the shooting river We're shooting across the river at each other, yes. A la sort of Fredericksburg-y. Okay. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're shooting across the river at each other. There never seems to be any actual Confederate movement, at least at this time. Well, they said they, they buried them. Yeah, the Union troops end up going... I think the Union troops cross. Into Virginia. Yeah, I think yeah, maybe why after... why bother bringing them back over? After it's over. That so, makes sense. So just... they're probably buried under the B&O Railroad, or the CSX now. Sure. Yeah. So that's really Fort Frederick's sort of claim to fame, but... The Maryland campaign comes up, and, and as, as I like to mention when I do the war program, every major campaign in Maryland, the Gettysburg campaign, the Antietam campaign, the Monocacy campaign, there are troop movements and activities, maybe not right at the fort, but within, eye, within view or with an earshot of throughout the war. And, and you have a problem with places like Cherry Run being sort of the local railroad stop, and it's Cherry Run on both sides of the river, and it's like, well, which is it? Who's doing what? So, but again, no major active battles. Those are kind of it. The first Pennsylvania actually puts Fort Frederick on their guide on as a, as a battle honor. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It's really cool to see it in gold leaf on, yeah, a, that's awesome. That's on awesome. a flag. I think that Fort Frederick may be listed on the first Maryland monument at Gettysburg. Oh my God. I have to double check. If it's not listed on the monument, it was listed in the program when they dedicated the monuments. Oh, we can find that pretty easy. 
Um, what what sort of so like uh, I don't think we skipped it intentionally, but when when Civil War soldiers start to inhabit this area again, mm-hmm. this fort has fallen into disrepair. Yes. So like, what is like you you sent me a great like sketch I guess of it like can you kind of describe um, what the fort's going to look like as they're there and then sort of as the Civil War leaves Fort Frederick behind? Because I know they don't yeah. leave it behind because I know, like you just said, we have campaigns in 62, 63, and 64 where they're getting within visual sight. Um, I actually have a follow-up question to that in a minute. But, you know, can you kind of describe the the derelict nature of the fort in 61? Sure. So... We know from some stories written in the 1850s, they did these excursions on the railroad to get people to travel by rail. And they stopped by. And that there's the, the drawings that, that you've seen and I've showed you are, are from those articles. Basically, the wall's there. It's covered in ivy. There are trees growing. You m- can still see the, the foundations of the buildings. Um, I know one place they talk about a heap of stones in, in one corner. Um so it's a real, it's a ruin. Yeah. It's a true ruin. Yeah. Now, now, mind you, a lot of it is still there. And, and, and they make reference to how good a shape it kind of is in terms of the integrity of the, like of the, the stone wall. Yeah. Structure. But, but the fort is not a fort anymore. It's a stone wall. Okay. So, um, one that actually lasts though, because it's still around today. Correct. Okay. Now we do know that there's a vague reference to the, the bank barn that Nathan Williams built in the north out of the northwest bastion being there at the time so he's done some damage for his own purposes using the stone to make one of those sort of typical pennsylvania bank barns that you see in gettysburg and around antietam monocacy those places if you've been in the battlefield you'll know them yep um so it's not in great shape according to samuel bookman the union troops are actually camped on the first maryland inside of the walls of fort frederick They've set up their tents. But I always like to say it makes sense. The military likes things that are linear. They like straight lines. And what makes a really nice windbreak? A big flat a stone big wall. big flat stone right. wall. So the troops apparently are camped in there. We also know that the officers of the 1st Maryland are staying in the Williams home. Right? Because we know that Nathan Williams' wife is feeding them. She's cooking for the officers. So they're in the home too. Uh, yes. And this is a pretty common practice because Nathan Williams' house is a two-story house. Usually what happens is family goes upstairs, officers take the downstairs, and there's a guard placed at the steps. That's, that's, that's kind convenient. of a usual... Yeah, and so she's, she's feeding them. So they're there. Um, there's a pretty good indication based on other accounts and on the fact that there was artillery there that uh, Union, Union soldiers knocked a hole in the fort wall. Um, in order to fire the cannon at. This and is the hidden gun, right? This is the hidden gun. Now, mm-hmm. now for years, that speculate. Everybody's like, I don't think that's true. But literally, one of these newspaper accounts talks about a masked battery at Fort Frederick. Well, what is a masked battery? That means it's, it's hidden. Hidden battery, yeah. Um, they talk about the Union soldiers being well entrenched. Now, is that just hyperbole, you know, because they were really good at embellishing things? Hmm. Or are they really entrenched in and around the walls of the fort? I think it comes just down... just being behind the walls. Right, yeah. correct. So I think it boils down to, like, something that I came across in Leesburg. They have a dedicate, Like, not a... So there's a development... Because obviously all of Leesburg's built up a lot and continuously so, but they have Confederate Fort Evans. It's preserved on private property there. 
Um, not any structures or powder magazines, but you can see it's an earthen fort, so you can see absolutely see. Yeah, remember we went there. Absolutely, you can absolutely it's a really see cool the, place. The uh, the the walls and parapets and things, but off site there's a. Uh, a support artillery position that mm-hmm. kind of covers the blind spot and it's it's labeled as the masked battery and one of the things that we learned was sometimes things got called the masked battery just because the people being fired upon couldn't see it right like the gun exactly. could have just been sitting out in the open but they never id'd where it was coming from so they're just like oh shit. but i think this <laughs> one is cooler because there is some sort of cloakiness to it because i think what they're wheeling the gun out firing it and then it's coming back through the hole uh, that's 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 the assumption and and here's the other catch now mind you there there's some time elapses but 1857 58 images of the fort no hole in the wall the next image that we know of of the fort 1877 hole in the wall hmm. all right so what happened between 57 and 77 civil war. war but could it be something else but again the masked battery the fact that that they talk about this Paxton's cut, it's almost directly yeah. across from where the hole in the wall is. Typically, a field gun needs to be in the field so you can move it around. But the hole is almost exactly three feet in a circle, and it's almost exactly what well, is exactly the height for a field gun to go through the hole. So where on, like if we were to visit the park today, where do we speculate that that location on the wall is? So if you're looking at the fort wall from outside the gate, you're walking up at the fort, it's to the left of the gate, about 12 feet over. It's hard to see now, more so because we just had work done to the wall there. But you can you can make it out. It's a little easier kind of to see on the inside. But, yeah, it's... It, so is it that something there. you could tangibly probably connect to still? That's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, last couple things about the Civil War. Um so the other campaigns you mentioned coming across. So 62, October, there's a detachment of the of Illinois Cavalry. The regiment suddenly escapes me. 12th. 12th Illinois Cavalry. Um, and they are stationed at the drawbridge on the canal south of Old Fort Frederick. The drawbridge ain't there today, but you still cross that same exact location and go down to our campground across the canal and the abutments for, for where that bridge was is still there. And it was actually a lift bridge. Ooh. Or no, I'm sorry. It wasn't lift bridge. It, it was a, it was a pivoting bridge. Okay. Sorry. It was a pivoting bridge with a, a arched walkway. So you could always walk over the bridge. Neat. But if you needed a wagon or a horse across it, it, it pivoted. So the boats could go into the big pool. That's cool. Um, so those guys are there. Is that why they call it Big Pool, Maryland? Correct. Nice. Because there's a two-mile-long lake. Dot connected. Dot connected, yeah. <laughs> um, so October, early October, there's a guy by the name of Jeb Stewart. Oh, never heard of him. Yeah. Was he, his name in the papers? His name was in the papers. God. He crosses <laughs> the Potomac Yep. Um, at McCoy's Ferry mm-hmm. and starts a ride up into Pennsylvania more or less his first ride around McClellan, right? Second. Second ride, That's I mean. The second, second ride, ride around 62, McClellan. 62, right? Yeah, 60, yeah, sorry, second ride around McClellan. Both are in 62. Well, I'm sorry, Maryland campaign era is, right. 60, is what I meant, is the second ride. So he crosses at McCoy's Ferry, and these guys from the 12th Illinois Cavalry, maybe some of our guys that are at Fort Frederick, and they may have seen some other activity, but these guys from the 12th Illinois, that regiment, parts of it, try to block... Stewart at basically the crossroads of what's today Route 56 and McCoy's Ferry Road um, or at Green Spring Furnace Road, which you really can't take anymore. Thanks, I-70. Hmm. But you Jerk. can, but you can roughly, you can roughly follow Stewart's path on the original roads. They're just a little cut up because sure. you right. can't go across 70 in all the spots. 
But they try to check his advance, and they basically, in some accounts, it's a three-hour running skirmish. Hmm. He tries to check them, and eventually they retreat to, to, to Clear Spring, and I think Stewart captures the uh, Federal Signal Station up on top of North Mountain. But, but so that unit, although I don't know if there's a handful of guys at Fort Frederick are involved, but that unit does try to stop, and it is a time when there's actually fighting, at least shots exchanged between, you know, what, Stewart's got like 5,000 troopers or... Uh, it's actually, it's not that big. Is it not that big now? No, it's, it, what's interesting is, is that the papers are saying that big, it's that big, but when you actually look at the orders, it's about 1,200 guys. Uh, you know what, that's right now, what you said that. Big, scary Jeb Stewart. But still, 1,200, 1,200 guys, yeah. and, yeah. and you figure that maybe a company, roughly a couple squads of a, of a Federal Cavalry Regiment's trying to hold them up. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's something. So so there's a connection there. We definitely have troops from that unit there. I don't know if they saw activity against Stuart himself, but sometimes we've commemorated that that activity at the fort, um, that action. And, again, there are other times, you know, after Gettysburg Campaign, I believe it is, some of Union, there's some Union troops probably the end of their line is in our campground today waiting to cross Hmm. over the river because you still they still had the same problem Lee had. Lee couldn't get across because the river was up, and then when Lee finally got across, they waited because they're like, well, we don't want to try to cross the river and get cut to shreds. Right, just run over. Yeah, yeah. So, they're, so they're there in the area. So there's a lot of little things beyond that. But but the winter of 61, 62 is sort of the big, the big time, um, sort of in terms of activity. One, one more interesting... Related story, Nathan Williams. So he pays off his mortgage by in seven years. So about 1866. His family reports that he's paid off his mortgage because of his activities during the war. So they've been paying him for use of the home or the fort? No, no, he's not getting a lease. He's a farmer. Oh, he's selling his crops. So the Union soldiers are buying his goods, his crops and whatever. He is also going across in the Confederate Virginia, selling his goods to the Confederates. Clever guy. Cheeky bastard. He may also then be coming back and telling the Union Army what he sees in Virginia. Sure. Oh, man. And probably getting some money for that. Now, the best part of the story, though, is at one time there was some, some concerns about his loyalty. He goes over to Virginia with his load of his wagon full of goods to sell to the Confederates. And a Union, quote, intelligence officer, I don't know what, that's how the family, you know, describes it over this year, but somebody who's, who's, who's going to question, wants to question him, because there really wasn't an intelligence branch. Not until 63. Yeah. Comes to the fort to find him, and he's not there. Was that Sharp? Yes. Yeah. Bureau of Military Information. Yeah, yeah. A local gentleman whose name escapes me, a white guy, old white guy, whose name, like I said, escaped me, but he lived right right off of or right on the same property, or right off of the Williams' property, goes over to Virginia and tells him, don't come home. They want to arrest you. So he goes over to Virginia, apparently leaves his wagon. I guess he probably leaves his wagon, gets on the horse or whatever, and he rides all the way down, I think, to Williamsport and crosses and then comes back to try to avoid being questioned. He ends up being questioned, hmm. not arrested, and, uh, but that's, yeah, so he does get questioned, his loyalty does get questioned, but apparently he is also getting information to the Union and as well as selling goods to the Union and the Confederates. Did they know about what year of the war that would have been? There's, they, it's, again, it's the sort of the family 
legend. Okay. A legend um, story. I, I mean, I, I totally, I totally believe it. I, but not. A, there's no date. No, there's so much. There's so much federal cavalry running around in that area, and they're being used for in, intelligence gathering a lot. Yeah. So. And there's no war like claims made about destruction of the property. Like if federal soldiers did knock the hole in the wall, that's his property. Not, not that I know of. Um, you know, and a lot of those claims don't get paid out anyways, but I have never, I don't know much <laughs> oh, yeah, about no. there being a claim. But it's, it's an interesting thing. And I also think it's interesting, you know, because I've had some people asking, as you think about what were the Confederates, what were their orders when they came across black people when they were in the North, particularly? Yeah, we're going to grab you and grab sell up. you back down South. So my, and again, this is my theory. Most of the Confederate troops that are typically around the Hedgesville, Martinsburg area are local troops. A lot, of t- several times it's the Second Virginia Infantry, which are all from a lot. There's several companies from Hedgesville, Martinsburg area. I think because Nathan Williams grew up, he knows them. He actually, because at first he grew up, he lived before his dad bought him bought his bought him out of slavery. Lived in apparently in the Martinsburg area, hmm. and then lived there at Prather's Neck, and then lived at that area. You know, and there's there's commerce and whatnot going. Yeah, I think he knows them, and he's just. Running under the radar. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's 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 our guy. You know, we yeah. know him. He's, uh, you know, I don't I don't know what terminology to use because I don't want to say he's their friend, but they know him. He's he's okay. Yeah, he's okay, and that's I think that's how he he gets away with a lot of what he's potentially getting away with because they he knows people, he knows the air, he knows how to get around. But I just think that that's kind of a cool story because it makes yeah. sense. He's, he pays off his bills right after the war because how many people are paying off their bills right after the war? Nobody. <laughs> yeah. Because the government's not stroking checks. Right. Yeah, there's no stimulus package. All right. Yeah. So so wrapping up here. So one of my favorite things about doing the physical 143 Wars Living History is the obviously the visual. So, you know, when, when the fort's back open, and we're going to get there in a second here, but when the fort's back up and running and you get to do that program again, I can't encourage you enough to follow along with the Friends of Fort Frederick on, on Facebook so you can kind of see what's going on. But when they do this event, it's it's fantastic to see... The, the living history approach to this where you got guys dressed up in provincial uniforms, you got guys dressed up as, as redcoats and, and American uh, continental soldiers, and then we, we have guys representing Confederate and, and federal soldiers during the Civil War. And it's just, it's cool to see so much history taking place in such a condensed period of time. We're talking less than 100 years. It's it's one of my favorite programs to do just because of the amount of like I I the first time I did it with you I gave a program I was talking about like artillery and heavy artillery which to be clear there was no heavy artillery ever stationed there but Rob has a whole fort it's an awesome opportunity to talk about other forts too <laughs> but um I I remember my favorite part of that event was when my program was done I just kind of got to walk around and listen to all these other like fascinating i i'll be honest i know a decent bit about the revolution i know practically nothing about the french and indian war other than what we've kind of talked about on this show um so i i love this program and when we when we wanted to have you on here i just immediately was like this is the this is the chat because it's a good way to introduce people to this fort it's three topics that people are either loosely or intimately aware of but it covers the spectrum and there's names everybody knows attached to this whole thing and there's there's like cool stories there's like speculated stories it's just there's so much revolving around this place and most people have never heard of it 
Like, think about everything we've talked about, and I bet you the majority of the listeners were like, holy crap, we've talked about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and General Braddock and, like, Turner Ashby and all these other Civil War names and things like that, and, and you probably never heard of that place until today. So all those people did, and they talked about it, and that's that's fantastic. So, so as we're leaving Fort Frederick at the Civil War, obviously the fort continues. It lives today. You interpret the site. So um, before we wrap up, with what's in store for the fort this summer, since we're coming back to life in the state of Maryland and here in the United States. what um, The fort's in disrepair. It's a ruin, as you said, by the time the Civil War rolls around. The war ends. What happens? Well, it, it's interesting, and, and, and I'll, I really will make a long story short, because I found this one day. I thought it was interesting. There was a movement early on to try to do something with the fort. And when I say early on, in the middle of the Maryland campaign, <laughs> the Maryland legislature is talking about forming a subcommittee to explore the idea of reacquiring Fort Frederick for the state of Maryland. Hmm. For military use at the time, or just general, like, we're, we're already thinking state parks? I think at that point, it's literally just for, to be a historic site. Oh, wow. Like historic preservation. And that comes up a little I'm bit. I'm impressed. So, but that's like, like, that's like literally September of 1862. They're literally like the dates on those records. I'm like, oh my gosh, like South Mountain is happening right now. Guys, you know, like you're Indians literally are... being invaded. Don't yeah. you have better <laughs> shit to talk about right now? Exactly, exactly. So that's the first reference. And then, and then I think we hit our centennial in 76, 1876. And I think that's when people really started thinking about it. Hmm. And it's still farmed. The Williams family is there until 1911 on the farm. Uh, Nathan dies in 1882. Um, they, they actually build a schoolhouse on the property for African-American children. Is he buried on the property? He is not buried on the property, but he's buried a few miles away near Clear Spring. Okay. And the so his all, grave is known. His family's all buried together, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so, they, and so they're involved in, in education as well for, for African-Americans right after the Civil War. Awesome. Um, and the, the schoolhouse, the 1899 schoolhouse still exists, and we're restoring it right now. Awesome. So, yeah, they're, they're looking at it. People are starting coming out doing historical sort of pageants and presentations and commemorations and, and, and stuff. There's some great 1880s and 90s pictures of people mm. in their Sunday best and these handmade rickety platforms talking about Maryland history. Probably incorrectly, but talking about it nonetheless. <laughs> Giving it a shot. <laughs> Giving it a shot, yeah. 1892, the state talks about buying it again. This time they want to make it the National Guard base. They want to make it the home mm. of the, the National Guard summer encampments. Okay. That falls through. They then continue the, during the I think 1880s, 1890s, the Fort Frederick Preservation Society is formed and chartered by the state to try to reacquire it and preserve it and everything. Um, the Williamses end up, I think they lose it in a tax sale or a, mor or a mortgage sale in 1911. Because uh, they acquired more property over time. And so the park really got bigger and I, something happened. I think it was taxes. They couldn't pay their taxes. Um, a guy by the name of Homer Cavanaugh buys the property from them, knowing that the state's interested in it. Hmm. And I think he pays... I forget what amount he pays. 
1922, finally, the state requires it, and he doubles his money. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, the, the numbers, because I always get, I always think it's, because I have the number 11 and 22, and I always want to say it's 11, and he sells it. I was like, no, those are the dates, so I might have all the numbers. <laughs> Either way, marked up. Yeah, he marked it up. The only thing that he had to do was remove the barn. Tear the oh. barn down that's in the fort. And that was like one of the, that was like the caveat to deal. State buys it in 1922. The State for- Board of Forestry buys it. But the mission of the State Board of Forestry is not preserving historic sites or making parks. It's trees. Preserving trees. Preserving trees. So the Board of Forestry, along with the Daughters of the American Revolution, start planting trees at Fort Frederick, and mainly trees that are non-native to this part of Maryland or sometimes this part of the country. Of course. An experimental forest to see what would work at Fort Frederick. So that's sort of the start of that. Um, and you've been cutting them down ever since. <laughs> <laughs> we have to a point. Uh, it's, it's cool, though, because there are still parts of the original plantation, tree plantation, that are still there and, and also find, like, random trees sometimes, and they're the spawns of those trees. Like, we have loblolly pines. Hmm. They don't grow here, by the way, guys. Not in western Maryland. Um, that's one. And that's, we have some cypress trees hmm. in the park. That's neat. Um, we have several other kinds of, I think we have a cedar tree that only grows out west um, that grows in our park. So we have still we have, have a big giant redwood. Nobody just notices this 800 foot tall tree <laughs> in the middle of the park. So, so that's, how they, that's how they got around to, to, to get it, they had to plant these trees. And the Daughters of American Revolution was big into that. They still are. The Daughters still plant trees periodically at our park. Hmm. Um, the DAR did some things in the 30s, like they restored the Fort Well. Uh, 1934, during the grips of the Depression, the Civilian Conservation Corps shows up and spends three years at the park. Um, they restore the fort walls to the, the what you see today, the modern height, the height of it. They uncap the, they find the foundation of the buildings. They do some very rudimentary archaeology. They build most of the buildings that we still use today, the, the road infrastructure. I mean, the, the park as we know it today is largely a visual sort of handoff from the Civilian Conservation Corps. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. So the CCC plays a big role, I always like to say. I thank Franklin Roosevelt for my job. Yeah. There you go. Because there you if go. the CCC wouldn't have done the work, I don't know what Fort Frederick would have ended up being. I mean, it was a park, but... You'd still be chasing the Wolfman of Catoctin Mountain around Gamble <laughs> State Park. <laughs> you know it. So, so that was, you know, that's kind of the 30s. And that's really kind of, for the most part, for better or for worse, almost the end of the story. 70s, the barracks are rebuilt for the bicentennial. In the late 70s, early 80s, our visitor center that we have today is rebuilt or is built. But the majority of what, what's happened in our park or what our park looks like today is that thumbprint from the CCC. Uh, you guys do a great job of interpreting that, too. Not a lot of places get in touch with interpreting their CCC no, history. I agree. And a lot of national park sites and state sites and, and other non-historical sites have the CCC to thank for their just outright Absolutely. existences. But they don't talk about that. And you guys are brilliant about touching on the fact that you guys are essentially here because of the work they did in the 30s. Right. Yeah, no. And and we love, we love the story. We have... Um, it's a very dated exhibit, but we have an exhibit about the CCC's time there. We're, we're planning a new exhibit in our original uh, CCC camp building that was on site, was removed, and was brought back. Um, basically, when they left, I guess, I don't know if the state sold them or if they said, if you can haul them away, you can have these hmm. tar paper buildings. 
and this one happened to survive. It was um, just off-site, right outside of the park, and was brought back. And we're hoping to put, put some exhibits in there and also use it kind of as a potential living history space to talk about the CCC era. And, and we've really been beefing up. I've got a, a trunk full of CCC dungarees Can and stuff. Can you have a beard in the CCC? No. God damn it, man. Like... I want to do stuff at your park, but I love my beer. You can have a mustache. You yeah, dude, I all right. We'll, we'll although 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 technically there were some guys involved with the CCC who are like known as local experienced men who potentially could have who weren't really enrollees, they sort of worked with in some cases they were the actual skilled labor telling the kids how to do their job. Well, and you've got the construction experience. There you go. You, there you, you go. You could potentially do that, but again, the thirties aren't a big beard era. True. I don't care. I, I'm just saying. I don't. What care. did you say earlier in the show? I live in the 21st century. No, and I, I do too. I, in terms of that visual, it's not <laughs> as. It to me, it's not as big a deal. 18th century is a. It's when you don't want me in a turnout, like a turn. What a, what am I? My brain, my brain is stopping. Turnbacks. Yes, and you don't want a beard there. I get if, that. If I, I get that. Yeah, but you know, even hobos shaved back then. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you said to me once. You were like, even the poor people found a way to shave. And I was like, so no beards? And you were like, no. Yeah, basically, (laughs) people who lived high in the mountains all by themselves, pirates, and um, people who had um, people locked in in asylums. Well, I check all those boxes. I'm crazy, and (laughs) I want to be a pirate. I would love to live on the mountain. Although I think if you're Russian, you could get away with it, too, though. Yeah, Mm. duh. So. All right, so 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 obviously Fort Frederick has a huge and storied and obscure and mysterious history, um, which uh, one of my favorite parts is is knowing that you are on the case. Um, you know, there are a bunch of historic sites out there that don't have good ambassadors for them, and that is not the case of Fort Frederick. You are an absolutely phenomenal interpreter. You are a relentless researcher. I got. I got to see you a couple years ago at the Hagerstown Public Library give a sort of presentation oh, yeah. on the fort systems that yeah. help support Fort Frederick and all these other things. And I was I was mystified just as I think we were about a half an hour in and I was like, you've probably put 200 hours into a 30-minute program, <laughs> like in terms of research and development for it. And I like appreciated that because it was such a full story about a really niche thing. And you do that every day at the park. And I've said it on this show as a joke a few times, but I've known you for years and you're still teaching me about this place. Um, I cannot thank you enough just for being my friend and being patient and teaching me that stuff, but for doing it with people you don't know day in and day out. It's You are a gem in the history world and you are um, keeping a gem of a history site. So uh, we really appreciate uh, everything you're doing out in the field. And Matt and I absolutely certainly appreciate you coming on the show here. So, Absolutely. So as we're getting out of here, what's coming up for the fort in 2021? So 2021 is going to look a little different than... than There's a shock. ...than 2019. Is there going to be a 2021? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's going to be a 2021. Um, 2021's already started. Nice. Uh, we kicked off with a homeschool group that wanted to come out and do a tour um, back at the end of April. And I use the term tour. It's not really a tour. Our educational experience. What are you we, from we the give Midwest? Them... You say tour like this guy. It's tour. Yeah, whatever. God damn it, man. Tour. I'm a, tour. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mid-Atlantic <laughs> person. My my. Your lexicon is jacked. Yeah, it is. It really is. <laughs> um, so we had a homeschool group, and that went really well. Uh, it was a modified from what we normally do. 
right now we're going to open up Memorial Day weekend, uh, the Friday of Memorial Day weekend. The program is going to be very basic when we have just a regular, quote unquote, regular weekend or, or weekday. They're going to do a flag raising program, talk about our flag. They're going to do a couple musk, well, three musket firing demos during the course of the day, and then a flag lowering because they just don't have the staff to do all the stuff that we used to do. Right. We're hoping to get some volunteers to come in we'll and, be there. And, and help out and help beef up some of our regular daily stuff. Um, now, our guys are going to be probably doing some other, you know, basic living history stuff. They're going to be doing lots of, as I like to say, fort maintenance, lots of oiling um, leather goods and hmm. polishing brass and cleaning muskets and, and doing things that would have been done. They're mundane, polishing shoes. Are you going to be doing that by order of the governor? Because remember, <laughs> you're Governor Ambrose. Uh, yeah, no, the, 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 the governor's already spoken. Listen up, fellas. You got some guns to clean and some leathers to oil. You know, I don't want to hear any lip. Stuff like that. They're going to do some cooking. We'll do some cooking in the fort this year and things. We're, we're really hoping that we get some more, more help. I know Memorial Day weekend, we're going to have a couple extra bodies. Because um, I actually get to go play on Sunday and Monday. Cool. So I'll be in the fort with them. And, and my boss will be in, I think, Friday and Saturday. Well, we'll make it out to support you this summer. So yeah. you can count on that, man. You'll see me multiple times being weird on your historic site. So Fort Hours. Great description. Will I mean, be, it's accurate. Yeah. So the fort this year also, we usually go seven days a week, Memorial Day to Labor Day. Got two employees. Can't do seven days a week this year. Might be a blessing. We'll, we'll see. We're, I'm curious to see how this goes. Right. We're going to be open Thursday through Mondays, so we're closed Tuesday, Wednesdays. But when we're open, the fort's open from 10 to 5. You'll have the interpreters there to talk to, do those few programs. You can, this year, at least for now, you're able to look into the rooms. You cannot enter the barracks like you used to. Um, that's based on some the COVID stuff. Sure, still. sure. Um, so we're doing that. I'm really hoping to do some theme weekends. Mm-hmm. One, four, three wars would be a good example of that. Yeah. Um, even just a, a civil war weekend. I, I definitely, I definitely like to pull off of one, four, three wars and I definitely want to get, because we were so close and I had some really guys, some really interested in doing a CCC theme, uh, weekend. Um, so trying to do some of that stuff, of course, we're going to do, even if it's just the few staff that we have, we're going to do, we'll be dressed out in American Rev kit during the 4th of July weekend. I have to look at the dates and see exactly how we'll fall with that. Uh, that's one of those programs that some years ends up being like a week long because the holiday falls on a Wednesday. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) well, I guess we'll start on Friday and we'll run to the next Sunday. We'll just talk about it until we're blue in the it's, face it's still we're red white and blue in the face there you go <laughs> it's one of the only two times that uh we run the stars and stripes up in the fort usually we have our fort frederick garrison flag or special 1750s flag but we uh we'll put up the 13 stars over the fort during our fourth of july programming nice. and then and then if we do anything um on september 11th if we're if we're open that late this year uh again staffing was going to be a question coming out of august so, but I'm, I'm really hopeful and I'm hoping that we, even if it's a, hey, first living history battalion, you guys want to come out and do a civil war yep. thing. Yep. Absolutely. Um, but anything that we do this year is going to be very, for the most part, it's going to be a pretty intimate in terms of the numbers of folks we're going to well, have even, come out. Even with an abbreviated season, it sounds like you guys are really making the effort and we're, that's what it's all about. We're trying. We're even, we're even hopeful that we'll get the cannon out this year and do some artillery, but I'm not holding my breath yet. Hmm. 18th century artillery. 18th century artillery. Um, as as for our historic weapons regs, we have to have six, minimally to to fire the gun. 
and I got to make sure I have solid commitment from some volunteers before I can make sure I'm not going to advertise um, artillery and and then yeah. not have it. That's no, that's, that's a you. bummer. Yeah. So, and again, it could be, hey, we're going to do a quote we used to call them Garrison weekends. You know, we're just doing French and Indian War, but that's not. Maybe we won't advertise it, but we'll we'll if we have the crew. If I get the cannon out and we have enough people to crew it, we'll we'll shoot it. But again, there's a lot of prep work involved with artillery, and uh, I got to have a good commitment before we'll be able to get the cannon out. So that might not be in for for this year. But we're definitely definitely doing programming. We definitely want people to come out to the fort and. We're hoping to put out some press releases throughout the year saying, hey, we're doing something a little different this weekend. Come out and come out and see it. Come out to, you know, we used to do a Pontiac Rebellion weekend. Sweet. <laughs> um, so, you know, Mr. Michigan over here. He, yeah. he, he <laughs> might do you know Matt's from that. Michigan? No. Yeah, right? No. Um, so, but that's, you know, we're, it's going to be different, but uh, things are getting better. So we're, we're excited. So, yeah, I mean, I imagine like Matt, similarly with his, his main Ranger gig right now, a lot of the the community, the sites, the reenactors, everybody's kind of relearning how to do this hobby in the current world we live in. So there's a lot of sites opening up slowly or quietly or smaller scale because we got to kind of flesh out what this is going to be, who's still around. Like right. we did witness a mass exodus from this hobby, kind of like we saw after the 150s for the Civil War wrapped up. A lot of the older guys were like, all right, I'm not going to be around in either period or like in reenacting shape for the 175 so a lot of them got out the pandemic shut down a lot of people's reenacting careers so there was a big exodus again so i uh i'm actually pumped to see all these smaller and quiet reopenings because they're going to be reimaginings and reinterpretations of how we've been teaching for a long time so this is actually i look at this as like a new birth for us as storytellers and keepers of these legacies to get out there. Um, social media is a very funky thing with the state of Maryland. Government, parks, doesn't matter. So how do people who, most people are using social media to stay connected these days. How do people get connected to Fort Frederick at all through social media right now? So there's there's two ways. Uh, one, follow Maryland State Parks um, on Facebook, Twitter, I think Instagram. Also follow Maryland DNR, the Department of Natural Resources, because they also share because we are under that umbrella. So when we do stuff, you know, we send out a press release or pictures or whatever, they'll post that stuff so you'll know. Also, the, the best way, uh, I know I've got to get back into to, to working with them, um, is our Friends of Fort Frederick Facebook group. You actually mm. have to join. It's a group. Yep. But for the most part, you can get in. They may not, it might not be instantaneous, but you can get in. And that's a place where we will share our events and pictures and things. I've Like I said, I've been a little bit absent from that, but I've also been absent from the most part from Facebook because, well, it's a cesspool. 2020. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I just, yeah, you're a rise to take that year off of social yeah. media. You, you missed a lot and nothing all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those are the ways that to, to follow us on, on social media. Again, we're not, we're not super active partly because we don't control it. Um, right. So it's it's been it's it's different. It's a different setup than than a lot of places because we don't have an on-site social media manager um, like apparently like the national parks or apparently like most sites or some sites have somebody that that's what they do. Yeah, like yeah. Matt gets to do a lot of that for Monocacy. I'm friends with Liz at Manassas who kind of handles that. Yeah. So park to park, I guess they get to do that in the states. They're just like screw you. It's one person in Annapolis who handles everything. 
It's probably not that's, true where they are. That's wild. But it it's, is, they it's, do that. It is kind of that way, yeah. Um, it's 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 interesting. I mean, and it's not it's not hard. It's just an extra layer. Yeah. And um, you know, I miss when we had our own park Twitter, and you know, I get that Twitter's mainly for people yelling about politics, but <laughs> I liked when I was the morning duty ranger and I saw turtles on the pond on the log, sunning themselves, and I could take a picture and and post it to Twitter. I don't feel like doesn't feels like more work, you know, like, oh, I got to send this picture to so-and-so with a cap where I could just and do it. Um, but, uh, hey, it is what it is. But, yeah, you definitely can get get uh, see what's going on. And, and, and please get if you're interested in parks and in the history of our parks, there there there's stuff out there on these on these uh, forums as well for volunteering and stuff like that. Can people use the same social medias to sort of like sign up for volunteer work or how would they go about volunteering at the park? The best way to do is is to, unfortunately, because it's a cumbersome URL, uh, Google, or use your favorite search engine if you still Yahoo. Hmm. Um, Don't be that old. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's like, I still use Netscape, guys. I do. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Google Fort Frederick State Park, and you'll find our website. It should be the first thing that comes up. There's information on there about volunteering and and how to sign up for that or 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 just drop us an email. There's a there's a general inquiry email address on there, so feel free to to drop us a line if you're interested, and uh, we'll go from there. All right, so uh, getting out of here tonight. One, you want to come back and do a follow up? Want to talk more about this? Because I have so many of my own questions. I know the listeners are going to have their own questions. Like, you ready to do this again in a few weeks? Yeah, yeah why not? you sound super committal to that. You want to, <laughs> you want to try that one again, buddy? No, no, I. <laughs> the listeners couldn't see my smile. No, I had a great time tonight, man. I uh, I know that we had done a lot of talking about like, because you you've never done a podcast like this before, or no, not done one ever. No, this is your first one. The 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 closest thing I did, I was a talking head on a documentary that is yet to be released. Did you say the f word? No. <laughs> oh, why is it not out yet? Well, let's see. I think it was 2019 when they oh, interviewed yeah, me. Oh, so. And and the guy told me it'd be a while, year two. So maybe right. this year, maybe next year. I mean, it's not oh, like he didn't have a ton of time to edit po- it. It's, it's, um, <laughs> keep us posted, though, yeah, it's if, a mul- when that happens. It's a multi-part series, I believe. It's on like the history of Washington County. It's being done through Antietam Cable or mm-hmm. whatever they are, Antietam Media. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that was cool. But yeah, definitely different than this. But kind of same vein. He asked me questions and i i love it a lot. you're a natural we've had, we've just did this twice back-to-back quarters where we had a guy who's never done this sort of medium of teaching and mm-hmm. like is a natural like, exactly you, you sound good behind a mic man so we look forward to having you back here again um i have a face for radio me too man <laughs> that's why i do this so, show so say we all trifecta so um so before we get out of here you can follow the history things podcast on facebook and instagram at the history things podcast uh, you can follow Matt on social media at, at Matt Borders Books. That's his uh, Instagram account. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at History Things with Pat. And as always, we encourage you guys to get involved with the show. Reach out with questions, comments, compliments, concerns if you have any. Hopefully you don't. Hopefully we've been keeping a light and doing a good job. But nonetheless, uh, HistoryThingsPodcast at gmail.com is where you can reach out to us or direct messages through our social medias. Um, obviously, you know, if you hear... 
uh, something that you think we should elaborate on or or uh, need to correct or clarify. You know, we, we've had to do that for the first time in a while in our last episode, uh, but we do encourage you to reach out for that. Um, and we definitely... Like, we're living in a world where, like, algorithms are a thing. So, like, if you're really liking what we're doing in the show and you're looking for ways to help us out, we would really appreciate it if you would uh, give us a five-star rating and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Um, it, it means a lot to us, just as much as you guys with every single download. And, and I, will, I will leave you with that is as we start the second half of Season 2, um, I cannot, I'm just, I'm humbled by how much this show has grown in a year plus. I am mystified by how much it seems you guys are enjoying that out there. So thank you so very much uh, for hanging out with me and Matt every couple of weeks. And, and li- Matt and I, sorry, grammar, English people out there. Not not English people, but, you know, like English majors grammar people. Grammar people, yes. yes. Some guy with a badge just that says grammar police on it is like, I'm done with this show. Unsubscribe. <laughs> uh, but, no, it, it does. It means... It means literally everything to, to me personally, and I know I know it means a lot to Matt. So thank you guys so very much. Rob, thank you for spending a bunch of hours with us. It's hey, been no great, problem. buddy. I've Absolutely. enjoyed it. Absolutely. We look forward to having you back. So um, so we're going to get out of here for tonight. Thank you for joining us for the first half of Season 2. We hope you would enjoyed it. Um, put your helmets on. I said this last year. Buckle up, baby. We're getting ready to go down the deep rabbit hole. we got something special coming up for you in just a couple of weeks. we got a follow-up with Rob Ambrose. And I am super excited because for the first time on the History of Things podcast, we're going to take a focused look and trip to the Western Front. So just in a few short months, in October, quarter four, we're going to talk about Verdun. Matt's going to lead the way on that charge. So good luck leading the First World War charge, Matt. I'll see you. <laughs> I'll write your loved ones, actually, because you're not making it that. out of that. But uh, no, we, uh, we have tons of great stuff coming up. And, uh, and we look forward to seeing you again. So for our guest today, Rob Ambrose, for my co-host, Matt Borders, I'm your host, Pat McGuire, saying you've been listening to the History Things Podcast. Thank you all very much. We'll see you later. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show.